I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. And you're listening to Snakes and Stogies. The only podcast dedicated to fine tobacco. All things reptile related. And the people who love them. As part of the Herpeticulture Network. Actually, there's another storm on the horizon, and the lightning is crazy, but it looks like it's pretty far away, so I don't have a care in the world. I'm ready to rock and roll. Mine was fine all day, and then I saw sort of when I first got in here that it was kind of struggling a little bit, and I was like, damn it. Oh, man. Well, we're here. We're ready. We're live. We are. It's episode 172. I think at the rate we're going, we might beat THP. In terms of the number of episodes by the time really? like the rate the race to 200 nice nice chp's at like 195 or six okay i don't know but all right uh, yeah 172 part of the herpeticulture network uh which is brought to you by blackboxcages.com check them out facebook instagram uh if you get a rack if you get a cage use the code at checkout thn T as in Tom, H as in Hen, N as in Ned. What the hell is that phonetics? That's the phonetic, that's the official Navy SEAL phonetic alphabet. Nice, nice. The phonetic codes. All right. Uh, yeah, save yourself some money, use that code. Um, you can use the same code at fulviusapparel.com. That's just for THP listeners and watchers. So if you're here and you hear it, you want to buy something, be it shirt, um, hats at some point i am working on the subok hat i'll have you know yeah i worked good, on it for about good. 30 seconds this morning before i got distracted by other stuff at work excellent good uh, yes so yes coming soon and then i have uh i bought a sweet i got a sweet deal on a on a cricket machine off facebook so i got some decals i'm working on that i'll also have up on the site like the morelia head stamp one that i have uh i'll have that as a as a decal um I got a bunch of other ideas that I made strictly just for the decal thing. So nice. I'll have those up here soon. Well, I'm wearing my Corallis. You are. Look at that. Look at that. Look at those colors. This, this lighting does not do it justice. Originally, I was just going to have that be like yellow or something, I think. And then I was like, you know what? Let me slap a gradient on it and see what happens. And then it did yeah. that. And I was like, okay. Let me get closer. I like look it. At that. <laughs> so. Love it. FullVisApparel.com, FullVisApparel on Facebook and Instagram. Give it a follow. Help your boy out. When again. is the Bittis shirt going to be available? That is actually up on the website. Son of a bitch. You did it. I'm in. And then, here. I'm about to text you. So, in my, my trial and error with this cricket machine, uh, I just finished... Like weeding the the this decal. It's a bit as decal, just so everybody's curious. But uh, oh trying yeah, to, trying to get it all figured out and trying to trying to learn oh, another machine awesome. and another program. So, dude, that is going to be a nightmare to to to. It won't be that bad. Oh no, it wasn't actually. So I I again I had to mess with the needle pressure or the blade pressure settings a little bit. Can I show uh, it actually, yeah, it actually came out way easier than the other ones did. It probably doesn't. 
I need to get more color vinyl. I just I literally went to Walmart when I got this machine and got like two rolls of of different colors just to try and learn with. So we're uh, so yeah. I'm Anyways, in. working that out. So those will be on the website soon ish. Uh, and then Puget Sound Pythons, check them out. Facebook, Instagram, Morph Market. Hunt them down, see what they've got up for grabs. Wade through the chaos that is Morph Market and uh, hunt them down, follow them, stay in the loop with what they're doing. So, And then shout out to, to Rob Stone. <laughs> Rob Stone is my hero. Rob Stone is our hero. I was, I was making... Shirt lives... Doing some shirts today, and I was like, you know what? Enough's enough. I've been talking about doing this for like two years. I'm just going to do it. Today's the day. So I slapped it together, and I printed it, and here we are. Looks great, man. Looks great. We love us some Rob Stone here at this, at this network. In stone we trust. In stone we trust. Most in stone, we salute you. What's new? What's going on with you? Um, I am back in the bitters. I yeah. I've always I've always kept bitters. I love bitters. I can't afford the the tiny ones because they're too tiny and too adorable. Um, <clears throat> but I've always had a handful, just just pets, just to kind of represent the genus. And uh, I still have a very very large adult female, but she's very old, very very old, and I have a feeling that she's not going to be around for much longer but i wanted to get back into puffs my puff died last year out of the blue i mean the thing was probably like seven or eight years old but i mean still he just he just rolled out of nowhere and i, I have no idea why so i have i've been puffless as as you'd say and uh yesterday i wound up getting uh 2.2 uh kwazulu natal cape puffs i got a pair of neonates and i got Those a pair of nice. adults dude uh i that's what i was actually just doing upstairs i was moving them from container to to container and uh from container to cb70 and it's so crazy the contrast in different lighting and different background like i had them on newspaper and they were like man these are great looking animals and then i put them on cypress mulch and i was like oh my god it slapped me in the face metaphorically speaking of course um but i'm stoked man and like they're they're probably my favorite of the puffs because they only get maybe 30 inches 32 really? inches max they're, they're not a big puff i mean some of the puffs get gigantic like that video that's going around right now yeah. from molly oh my god yeah that i mean those west african puffs get huge but um we rarely get stuff out of south africa and when we do it's usually an arm and a leg so i had a great opportunity and now i'm back in the puff game and i dude, like them because they're like a desei in puff form yes that's exactly what nipper said that's exactly i sent nipper the picture of the of the mail after it shed and he was like it, you could tell like he was typing like you saw the dots in the bottom and then you stop something stop and then you saw the dots again frantically starting and stopping yeah. and uh he went up calling me this afternoon we bullshitted for a minute and uh he's like he's like mate i thought it was the say i so it's good man it's a, they're good looking snakes, three right? times the size yeah i know right dude the thing is literally the thickness of my wrist crazy it's killer man stoked so and uh as for smokes tonight i never got to smoke that placentia oh, 149 yeah. so it's still cut i just put it back in the box and we're gonna rock and roll with that tonight so what do you got on deck 
Uh, so I was just finishing up a Adobe that I didn't finish earlier, but I have uh, a diesel vintage. I don't know if any can see that, but do they uh, have I, the coolest uh, band? This one, yeah, this one does. Uh, I think these the Toro is like eight ninety five, so it's not an expensive smoke. Um, I smoked one the other day and. You know, it wasn't anything life changing. It wasn't horrible either. So I'm going to smoke it again and give it a shot. Uh, and then he has some new, really like Sokka stuff is something. If you see Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust, ask them when they put it on the shelf because that is a brand overall that I found. If if you smoke it fresh, like they just opened a box and put it on the shelf, it is not going to be nearly as good as if you give those suckers, you know, two or three weeks of sitting before you, you know, you smoke them. And I'm, I'm patiently waiting uh, to give one of those a shot. So that'll be for a snakes and stogies uh, in the next couple weeks, but anxious to try one. It's part of the, his Mikay Rita stuff. So it's bound to be decent. You're, You're muted. muted. Oh. Every time. I was saying, excellent. Um, before we introduce our guest, anything else you want to touch base on that's new in your world? Uh, nothing too crazy. The All the hypos, the hypocorns that I hatched out, all but one eight right off the rip. Um, I'm going to weigh everybody Saturday and see where we're at. So interestingly, I weighed them set this over the weekend on Saturday uh, before I fed them because that's the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to feed them and then Saturday I'll weigh them and then I'll feed them again and then repeat. Um, I've been averaging the weights as well and what I'm actually going to end up doing is splitting into the two groups uh, like the not the, the cut pinks and the not cut and the average dropped just from 722 until Saturday uh, they went from 6.68 grams on average to 6.19 grams on average, which is a considerable drop given it was only a week. Um, so again, I'm going to split the two groups up and do the averages for both for each and then probably keep doing the overall average for everybody. Uh, so we'll see. I'm, I'm interested to see what this first weigh in after that first meal looks like. And hopefully this, this non-starter, Will kick in because if he refuses this this coming weekend, then he's he's going to be pulled from that that study. Or I'll I'll continue to probably weigh him until it takes off just to see. You know, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, it, one one animal is not going to be a great interpretation of of data, but to see yeah. have one that's like really struggling to see just what's going on weight wise over the course of the same timeline as everything else. That'll um, be interesting, but. The Het Castagna and Het Motley stuff, those are all due to start shedding here soon, which I'm really excited about because those things came out of the egg with some just screaming oranges on them. Um, interested to see what's what's going on there, uh, if those Hets have any influence on any of that kind of stuff. Um, I don't think they will, but we'll see. They may end up looking slightly different than normal corn. I don't know. But other than That's that... Good. 
Got a That's Baird's good. clutch. That that first Baird's clutch is supposed to hatch any day. I don't even know what day I'm at. It's got to be pushing 70 and change, 70-something, I think. Okay. Um, okay. I've moved, I moved them into the room, moved them into a bigger egg container because the egg box I had them in, they were, you know, there was a couple eggs that were, like, touching the lid, and it was getting some condensation and stuff. So I just moved sure. them into a bigger, more open tub that when they do hatch, you know, they have enough room to kind of get under the – the moss and and nice did you um can you hear that alarm yeah very faintly yeah. okay sorry it's lightning alarm that's pretty cool sorry about that guys um yeah that was the um that was like the get inside it's coming you know um it's actually from the middle school down the street women and children last yeah Women and Mogs first. Um, I was going to say is you were talking about the oh, did you take the the egg box and put that take the lid off and then put that whole box into another box or did you actually transfer them? Actually transferred them. Oh, geez. You're ballsy. I love it. Well, see, if I was smart, the problem is, is the other it's a Sistema box that I used and I have those. Right. Carolina scorpions in the other one. Uh, so if I was smart, I'd move those those devil scorpions into something else, and then have that other box ready to go with some spag, and then I just have to move the eggs. Instead, I have to like set the eggs over to the side, put the spag in that box, and then move the eggs on it. So it's all right. If it were sure. like chondro eggs or something delicate, I wouldn't be doing that. But yeah, it's like, yeah, they're rat snakes, they're corn snakes, they're you know, yeah, I ain't, ain't worried about it. Well, I actually went out to. Um, central glades uh last night and wound up getting my uh, i don't even know i guess you call it broward county got my 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 first ever broward county corn that i could actually keep because uh every time i find corns in my in broward county it's always unprotected areas so i can't take anything home you know so i actually got one and i was hoping it would be that same miami-ish coloration is the other one that marcus got me but when i get it home and like the actual the actual light of the house you know not just headlights it's very different it's very normal looking but i kept him because you know he's cool looking it looks like it might be a girl um we'll see i'll get some meals in them and go from there so me and jake so monday no what's today friday jake and i went and cruised the okatee hunt club Nice. There's, there's state roads that, that go through there that are public access. Uh, it rained a lot Friday night, so I wasn't too wasn't expecting much because it was like raining really hard, and then it stopped a little bit, and then it come down again, and just in sheets, and then it stopped again. And I was like, told Jake, I was like, I don't know if it's worth going out because it's just if it was done yeah. raining, like we got a really good hard rain, and it was done, I think it would have been perfect. Uh, but because it kept sort of off and oning like that, um, saw some Nerodia, okay, and uh, garter, and a ton of frogs, ton of toads. Um, nice. So it was actually I want to get out there again because it was it was freaking gorgeous out there. That's the first time I had actually been on the hunt club like in it. Nice. And it's it's really nice out there. That's awesome. That's, well, yeah, I mean that's that's about it though as far as updates go good man we both had good updates i'm glad to hear it but we have a guest and i'm sure that guest has updates would you care to do the honor smitty 
Yeah, so this is uh, something we've we've had in the works for a couple weeks now. Um, you know, we wanted to coincide the show with with Frog Week 2023, and uh, you know, we're joined here by Mr. Aaron Kabui of Woods and Forests. I mean, would you consider it Woods and Forest Media, or would, is it just Woods and Forests? Well, overall, <laughs> it gives you a dilemma because I'm the founder and president of the nonprofit, and I'm also the owner of the media brand. So either one you want to call it, because uh, it's a collaboration project. So the nonprofit is doing the field work, and I'm filming it and uh, narrating it and doing all the other stuff. So if you want to say it's a Woods and Forests media project, Either way, I mean, I'm just happy to be on the show. So, I mean, however you want to introduce it. Well, that actually it worked out well because Phil was telling me a couple weeks ago about the time that that you had, you know, we had gotten in contact. Phil was like, "Man, I want to do. We need amphibians. We need to. We need to talk salamanders and, and frogs and stuff and toads." It just I was like, "What perfect timing!" Because <laughs> you know, then we got in contact and we made it happen. So. We made Phil's Phil's wish come true. Oh yeah, Phil, you were manifesting me on the show. It's awesome. I appreciate it, it, man. That's right. It was <laughs> you were you were putting it out in the ether, and it just I got that that sizzly static electricity. You could feel it all the way in South Florida, <laughs> all the way from Pennsylvania Radiated. down the East Coast. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm really excited to be a part of this and to be talking with you guys. I've seen the show a good bit, and so I'm just really excited. But yeah, I mean, I'm really happy to bring amphibians on the show and talk about them and talk about a little bit of this project. Uh, a lot of people probably don't know, but there's actually a conservation project up here in Pennsylvania that I started in 2019. And we've just been trying to get people to care about frogs and toads that are native to the Northeast. And it's crazy now, like the feedback, multiple newspapers and I'm not going to give anybody a spoiler alert probably that's watching this, but in the local area that I'm from, the news actually wants to do a news story about it, which is kind of cool because a lot of times these types of animals get overlooked. And so, I don't know, I just, I think about it as a major win for a lot of this project. Um, The thing is, what I see is like these videos tend to be a slow burn for whatever reason. So it might start out a little bit slow, but then, you know, you give it, a day, a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months, and then I'll come back and I'll see like, oh, so the audience jumps on later. I don't know why that is. I'm hoping we can get a better turnout, but I know that the tendencies of the channel and the tendencies of the, the followers, it seems like, you know, they get on whenever they want to get on, no matter how much you poke them. But I mean, you guys probably know about that too, being on social media. Yeah. You got and you got to give it time for people to, to share it, you know, and spread, yeah. mm-hmm. spread the gospel, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing that is interesting. Looking at sort of the analytics, just from the the audio version of of this stuff alone, is like the amount of people that listen days after it's been uploaded. You know, you would think that it would be kind of an instantaneous sort of crest, and then things would sort of you know level out a little bit. But it seems like it spikes and sort of stays spiked, and then it'll kind of by the time the next episode comes out. It seems to kind of taper off some again, but it's weird. It's it's not what you would think, you know, it would be. But I think it's also deceiving too, because a lot of the analytics, it'll show you like if you're not paying attention to how it's all laid out. First of all, every server website's got it laid out differently, but it'll have it like by the hour or even by the day, and you'll look at it. You're like, man, it only got two plays today. Like two people in the whole world listened to it or watched it. 
and then you'll come back like 18 20 hours later and it'll be like 500 like yeah. how did how did that happen you know so yeah. we just got to give them time to spread that word there my is... analytics for you guys um i'm sorry not my analytics no. my news feed it comes up like a couple of days later um sometimes i'll get it on like a Wednesday or I'll get it on a Friday or I'll get it on like a Sunday. I don't know. It's weird. It, it just seems like as I'm scrolling, then it just starts to come up. But if I'm not like really on Instagram, like it'll, uh, it'll at some point come up, but it doesn't come up like as quickly as what I thought it would. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how, like all the, all the algorithms and those things, you know, it's constantly changing. I don't even try to, you know beat it anymore or figure it out it's just whatever put it out there and if people find it they find it it's kind of my <laughs> my approach at this point um but we do actually have i put a link to either your channel or that first episode that you dropped today in the description you know so if you if you're watching this on facebook or instagram uh not instagram youtube um uh, just write right down below give it a give it a look watch it subscribe all that good stuff check it out uh, I did watch the first episode, which dropped this afternoon, um, and it actually it brought up a lot of questions that I had, which you know we'll get into. But we'll uh, sort of kick it off, I guess, with sort of a you know your a general introduction as far as your background and herps and sort of how you came to start the the F and W or uh, W and F project and all that good stuff. Why amphibians too? A lot of good questions. Well, I'll try to be brief here and not go too deep into detail here and into the weeds. But no, dude, dive in, man. Head dive first. In. <laughs> dive in. That's what man. the show's about. All right. Well, all right. I'll give it my best shot here. So I'm a graduate student in IUP at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and I'm in the biology department. I'm actually focused on herpetology and mostly frogs and toads. Um, I didn't actually start in biology. I started in communications at a branch campus of the University of Pittsburgh in my hometown. And originally I wasn't planning on even going for biology. And uh, I'd grown up for a long time, like being exposed to ponds and being exposed to frogs and toads more so than others, like more than reptiles and even salamanders. But I'd always seen them. And there was a long period of time where I, wasn't in the hobby, didn't really want anything to do with it. And I was doing landscaping at a local plant nursery. And every time I'd be out into the field, this was like landscaping in the plant nursery, but I'd be out in the field and we'd be working, whether it's bagging mulch, building a greenhouse or whatever, like moving plants. And you'd see the American toads always hanging out with us. They'd always just kind of look at us like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you in my home? I'd be eating isopods and stuff and just really chill. And I just thought that was really cool and I don't know I just had a interest in wanting to work with them and bring attention to them and actually the ironic part is I first wanted to get into this because of the northern leopard frog and the American toad but the main animal was the northern leopard frog because in Pennsylvania a lot of people don't know this unless you lived in a location where they used to exist but northern leopard frogs are one of the fastest declining species in Pennsylvania. And a lot of people don't even know that that are hanging out, like living in the uh, counties where they used to exist. They still think that they're there. 
but there's a lot of data right now that shows that they're not there. So knowing that going into it, I wanted to raise awareness for that animal. And I really always could find American toads. They were always reliable, but it really changed whenever I got a female American toad ace at that same plant nursery years later, I was talking about her a little bit before we started. Um, I think this really, this whole story, maybe it'll take off and people will be interested in checking this part out. Um, but in the plant nursery that I worked at, they dig holes and then they put big pots in the ground and then they put the trees in those pots in the winter time. And like when it's going to get cold and there's a frost, so the okay. trees don't die, but in the springtime they pull them out. So now they're just like pitfall traps all over the place. Well, some of the toads will fall in there and for years, probably over 10 years now, I'd go down there and I'd get them out and rescue them. And I just really wanted an American toad when I was first starting out. So this is to give you a timetable. I got my first ever frog, like really getting into it in 2014. It was a white's tree frog and she's still with me. Her name's Max. I thought she was a male at first before I really was getting into all the hobbyist stuff. But anyway, uh, Ace is probably the most influential, most interesting or inspirational animal to me because um, as time went on, I had these ideas. I wanted to build this like Pennsylvania themed enclosure and I also wanted to make people care about them. And I thought, man, this is the perfect toad to do it with because she's got a lot of personality, a lot of character. I got her young, so I got the chance to see her very early in life, how she was going to behave. And um, when I was at Pitt, the branch campus, Pitt Johnstown, it was my first year there. And like I said, I was going for communications. I don't have any regrets going for that, but I had heard rumors about this guy who was a herpetologist on campus and there's only one of them. And some of the other people were like, Oh, you got to meet him. You got to meet him since you're talking about frogs and toads so much. And I kind of explained to him where I was at, what I was trying to do with my life. And he thought, man, you're just so passionate about this. You really need to think about going for a career or transitioning or just thinking about going to school for this because you're really, really interested in this and you're really passionate. And honestly, it was the first time I thought about it because I knew how, intense the math requirements were going to be and all the chemistries and everything else and i told him i was like man i don't know if i can like handle that i i'm not like a scholarly student and you're asking me to take calculus and you know uh, organic chemistry and all this other stuff and i'm like uh. i feel your pain man <laughs> so i was like really on the fence and he slowly was talking some confidence into me and building me up through that whole semester it was like february when he'd started talking with me and it was even before that, so I'll back it up a couple months, Ace had been going through some very serious health problems. I didn't know back then, just starting out, that American toads and other wild frogs and toads carry parasites. And no matter how good of the care is that you take, you know, you handle your animals with, they'll still get those parasites, they'll get an overload and they can die. So that actually was where Ace was headed. She was sick and she was starting to prolapse. She probably prolapsed about four or five times, which is crazy that she survived that to think about it now looking back because I look at all these different Facebook groups that I'm a part of and all these animals are having a prolapse and then the next day they die. So Ace is a really tough toad to be able to go through all of that and still want to eat and still want to live. So I called the Pittsburgh Zoo and I had asked them, do they have a herpetologist? Do they know somebody who can help her? Like, is there something I can do? Cause like the local vet just wanted to put her down. She was literally three days away from being put down. It was like a Hail Mary attempt 
the Pittsburgh Zoo sent me a phone number of who to call. I called the wrong person, <laughs> but uh, it was the right <laughs> vet because the vet that I called actually saved her life. And then what happened after that is kind of like they say history because I said, all right, like this is the promise I'm going to make to this little toad. Seeing as I was going through a challenging time in my life, the fact that she was so resilient, she wasn't willing to die when the odds were stacked against her. It really made me take a different perspective on life. And so I was like, you know what? you're going to get the best toad tank that anybody's ever built on the earth. <laughs> and I'm trying to live true to that promise. I finally got that tank. We could talk about it later on if you want, but not yeah. only that, I wanted to get into conservation and I wanted to help these animals because um, like that just won me over completely after that, seeing how she just overcame it and then watching her story unfold. Now it's been five years since she had those prolapses and she's like, she's probably around seven or eight for a female American toad. I mean, they can live much longer than that, which is good, but, um, man, I'm just so thankful to have her. And yeah, she's, she's like an icon in terms of the nonprofit and the, the media brand. So that's really where I started was just wanting to make a difference. And she kind of was the driving force for that. And again, she inspired me to get back into school, like to, to really want to go for biology. And now I'm in the graduate program. I can't even believe that but it's awesome. crazy stuff. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. That's a, a species or even a, a group for that matter. Cause you know, just that, that overall, that sort of clade with toads in America. Uh, we have a handful of species down here in South Carolina um, and we have spade foots and stuff. And, you know, you don't really see people, at least that I've noticed keeping those even though they seemed like they would make awesome captives if you, you know, you set them up oh, right. Totally. Totally. The right person needs to get them because it costs a lot of money because you got to fight that battle every year, deworming them. And you've got to mm -hmm. make sure they have a varied diet because American toads, but you bring up, bring up a great point. Fowler's toads and Southern toads, even spade foots that are a little bit different than everybody. Uh, they all are generalists. So they eat so much variety out in the wild. And a lot mm -hmm. of people make the mistake by, well, I'll just feed crickets and mealworms. And I'm not necessarily saying that's what I did because I get a lot of my stuff from Josh's frogs. Shout out to them. But uh, no, I I was even using herp cal. I was using all that stuff. I was using the calcium dust. I was trying to do everything I could that I'd learned. <laughs> and it wasn't working out for the wild animals. So uh, the vet sent me a, a peer-reviewed research paper about a Missouri gut load that you feed the crickets, the roaches, all that. And I switched the diet from all the inverts to that. And I'll tell you what, I can put weight on a frog. I can take weight off of a frog. I can do whatever that's necessary. I weigh them just like you're weighing your snakes. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, man, it's, it's more than people give it credit for. And these animals will use more space than you'd think. Uh, that's one I of the imagine. most misconception uh, misconstrued ideas about these animals is you see a lot of people put them in a shoebox or a 10 gallon, but yeah. um, man, Ace, she's going to get a 240 gallon once it's done. It's behind me. And I really am excited because I think she'll go the full length of the tank to hunt if she has to. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. I actually, I got a, a couple guys by me that we call them the bug boys because we always go out looking for different kinds of arthropoda. And uh, he actually had like a little colony of spadefoots. And dude, I would go over his house to just hang out. And I'd be like, dude, what, what are the spadefoots doing tonight? And he, he had. Um, I love it, those things, man. Little aliens. I, yeah, yeah. Little, little yep. aliens, man. And it was so crazy because 
they knew they knew when food was coming they knew what day of the week the food was coming because he wouldn't yep. feed them every day but he would have um this really long i mean the only way i could describe it is basically two cb70s like together wow and yeah. he would slide this thing out and open the lid and he he had them just on um uh what's the stuff like uh what's the eco earth yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, just like Eco Earth and some leaf litter, and each one made its own little divot pocket. Yep. It, it looked like the moonscape, and they would all be sitting in their little bubbles, just <laughs> waiting for food to get dropped in. Little foxholes, yeah, yeah, yeah. foxholes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, and and our good friend Harry, uh, he's in North Florida, and he's got. I'm assuming they're Southerns, but they might be Americans. He, I think he's North enough that he could probably get some Americans, and. Dude, he sits on his porch. Hopefully, he's listening right now. He sits on his porch and he just hand feeds the wild ones. They all hang out with him. Yeah, and it's like, dude, toads we'll are there and at, drink man. a beer and smoke a cigar. And he's just throwing. Yeah, a dude, it, uh, dude, American toads, man, it's where it's at. You want to hear a crazy story about American toads? Always. Okay, so this comes from the Facebook group that I manage, but there's a friend of mine on there who's an admin, and he was telling people, and I, I think this is a true story, but don't quote me on this, but supposedly. American toads know that moths and other insects will come to your uh, yard lights. And so if they're motion sensor, the big female toads will actually set them off to get the insects to come to them. So really, there's a thought going on. And I don't know, you guys can kind of test this out too, since we're still in the summer. But if you're seeing American toads by your yard lights or any frog for that matter, but let's just keep it to like toads. If you're seeing the toads hanging out by the yard lights, that could be why. Um, that's a really interesting thing that they might have figured out. And if they did, I mean, imagine that'd be an amazing research study right there. That'd be pretty mm-hmm. awesome just to yeah. find out how did they figure that out, that the light brings them. Well, I, I can't say that the ones by me are specifically jumping up and down to get the lights to turn on, but uh, we have a ton of cane toads by me, man. It's honestly, uh, it's one of the only toads we really find where I am. It's very suburban and, Dude, you'll go out on the porch like you forgot to turn the light off, and there'll be like six of them just chilling, just <laughs> waiting for everything to fly in. Like they're sitting in a back alley rolling dice or something. Yeah, legit, <laughs> legit. Like they just got dominoes in the street, man. <laughs> so, you know, that is one thing that I've always sort of appreciated about them, though, is like you, you know, everyone has, at least if you live in the South anywhere, like. You you have a toad that hangs out in your in your flower beds and stuff, and it's like sure. every night during summer, if those lights are on, they're chilling on your porch, just waiting for stuff to hit the ground. Dude, even out west, and there's man. like no fear. Like yeah. you walk up and they just sit there, and they're like, yeah. "Oh, you!" Like it's yeah. they're surprisingly bold for an animal that that has you know a considerable number of predators to. Yeah, to you know, you wouldn't out. think that. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like they know they're toxic. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I like we were recording one night probably a year or two ago and I was just sitting here and a little spade foot just came hopping in and just sat there and stared <laughs> at me like what are you doing? Yeah, man. That's awesome. Wild. It was the biggest spade foot I'd actually seen. That's cool, man. Yeah. They're great. Love toads, man. It's funny. I'm definitely I'm definitely a toad guy and like I'm I've tried to to get like to elbow deep into salamanders and and like my my fiance has a dumpy and dude, I love mm-hmm. the dumpy, man, but I'm just, I just feel like I'm a toad guy, man. I just, I just am. Yeah. Well, yeah. you're in a really awesome spot because in the Southeast, you guys have so many toads. So oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the toad diversity is amazing. I mean, why wouldn't you be? The Fowler's toad is so unique and you've got the Southern toad and in some spots, I don't know, I guess you're too far South for the American toad, but yeah. I mean, you've got so many different toads, the spade foot, um, even the narrow, invasive narrow mouth. Yeah. yeah. Narrow mouths. Yeah. That's another narrow cool one. Really even oak toads. Yeah. 
See, I, I've always seen pictures of oak toads, but I don't know that I've ever actually seen an oak toad here. And they're supposed to be native to my area. But I wonder, maybe the, the Barrier Island thing might have might cause a it, hurdle it, there. It, it very well might. But I need to get better at identifying those and, and the southerns. And, you know, we have a handful of species here that I'm, yeah. I'm frankly really bad at, at identifying. But it's it's pretty much entirely because I haven't taken the time to really look at pictures and studied it to, to remember like this is what this is and but the oak toads man the pictures of those have always stood out to me just it's like a like a little cane break in toad form with that that red stripe yeah. down the back and you want to hear something cool about oak toads so there's a documentary by bbc america and it was like plants behaving badly so they were filming sundews i think it was in the carolinas it could have been florida but anyway it was really cool because they were showing the oak toads facing off against the sundews to steal the insects and I just thought that was really wow. neat that, you know, the little toads knew as the sundews were like grabbing the prey, you know, and they're pulling it in, the toads were able to grab it from the tentacles or whatever you want to call the, the actual part of the sundew that moves. But I just thought that was pretty neat that there's a competition going on in those bogs. Well, I guess he's out. He's going to go look for toads. I think he's the, the weather is uh, uh oh, either that or he's he's got a phone call. Yeah, supposedly we have them here, and I uh, maybe it's because they're they are considerably smaller than the the southerns, right? Than a yeah. lot of other species. Yep. I don't know. I need to I need to look because that's always been a species that stood out to me just from the pattern and the color and stuff. Yeah. Um, and you would think, I guess, they'd be fairly easy to identify with that line going down the back like that. But I'm looking at some pictures of them now. Yeah, they're really interesting. I like those narrow mouths a lot, though. Those are uh, that's a really interesting, interesting toad too. Do you have them a lot where you're at? Like, oh yeah, pretty, oh, oh yeah. you see them pretty frequently. Yeah, so my parents have a pool, and so this time of year, like that skimmer box, most of the time I'll go. So at my parents' house, they have like a, a barn type thing, and that's where I raise mice and rats and stuff. And so usually when I go there to check on the mice in the mornings. I'll go to the skimmer box and pull out whatever's alive and, and, you know, save it. And there's, there's always a decent amount of, of narrow mouths in there. Um, not like, not a ton of bullfrogs. I think I've only found a couple of bullfrogs in there actually, but um, narrow mouths and Southerns and, and that there are plenty usually. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to pause for one second because I couldn't talk about these toads and just sit there. So I had to go catch one. I knew it. <laughs> I, I knew it. <laughs> what do you got there? Is it a southern toad? No, it's a cane. Oh, it's a cane toad? Yeah. And uh, he, he, he ran away from me for a second. I'm going to switch hands and unplug the headphones for a second. But uh, We're going to see how skilled he is of a juggler. Yeah. Uh, how many so did he get peed on? He's already peed on me like three times, and uh, it's crazy because he's a triumphant little bastard, but there he is. What's up, buddy? Hey, help, help. He's me. got some great coloration, too, but he's got some growing to do. He's a little nugget. Yeah. So, yeah, but uh, he lives in the patio. There's like seven or eight of them, so once the lights go out, the dog stays in. You know? Yeah. There's some cool stuff going on. People are taking 
cane toads they capture in Florida and they're actually shipping them out to different locations as like ambassador animals to teach people about invasive species. And also, you know, they make decent pets too, whenever you get out of the range that they can invade. Yeah. Yeah, man, I've kept them before and uh, they, do they're, they're good hardy toads, man, as long as you do like what you said and you just set them up right and don't assume they're going to live in a shoebox, you know? Yeah, exactly. Especially them. I mean, they're pretty interesting. They can travel. I mean, I don't know if you heard what's going on in Australia, but they've actually seemed to have evolved to grow. So that way they could get across the desert. That's a really uh, yeah, crazy thing. Which, which I think is super interesting because by me, and I don't want to jinx it by saying this, so knock on wood, um, I've not yet found a cane toad in any kind of natural wilderness like Everglades type by me. It's always in urban and suburban areas. And now I don't find spadefoots anymore in those areas. I don't find southern toads in those areas. I rarely ever find a narrow mouth in those areas. But when I go west, I find I find the other stuff and I don't see cane toads. So that makes me really happy, which I think they're just they know that the urban area is prime. So why leave? You know? Yeah. I'm going to go wash my hands. Excuse me. <laughs> no problem. I, it's, I I feel bad because I'll open that skimmer box and there will be, you know, a pair of them with the, the male and amplexus and the female's been dead for a, a minute because they've been oh. in that skimmer box and he's still trying, man. But yeah, that's, uh, I mean, oh, go ahead. I try to save, save as many of them as I can, you know, that are still kicking. So. so we actually see that a lot up here, especially on the topic of frog week with wood frogs. So, so many of them will grab a hold of a female and they'll pull her to the bottom of a vernal pool or a pond or a puddle, like a large puddle. And, you know, she can't get up because there's so many of them, they'll actually drown her. And oh, you wouldn't wow. think that that happens a lot, but I mean, it happens frequently enough. I mean, we see it a couple of times a year. So yeah, that's the unfortunate situation. I haven't really seen it with American toads, but I assume that there are spots where that does happen when, just there's that many american toads they're grabbing onto the female at the same mm -hmm. time but yeah mostly it's in wood frogs and and that's another animal uh that we prioritize something that i keep even and something that i find to be one of the most fascinating yeah yeah i see uh so it seems to be usually toads be it not a ton of spadefoots but i believe they're southern narrow mouths and then every now and then we'll get like a either a leopard or a pickerel frog i don't I couldn't tell you which one was which because they look so similar, but, um, and every now and then a bullfrog, but it's weird that it's, you know, we have a ton of tree frogs, you know, green tree frogs, squirrel tree frogs. Uh, and I really very rarely ever see tree frogs in that skimmer box, which I, I find interesting, but yeah, I don't know. But what's the, uh, there are, you said four species that, that the project is sort of focused on, um you know you mentioned the wood frog what's the others that you're you're that are taking priority well in order chronological order up here in western pennsylvania the wood frog always comes out first and usually comes out a few weeks before the american toad so that's our first animal of the year that we start with that's actually the first episode's target animal mm -hmm. and then the american toad comes out a little bit after that there's like a very small breeding season for pickerel frogs. It's really an odd situation. They come out right around the end of the American toad breeding season, but they come out around the same time the gray tree frogs are breeding. So the pickerel frogs 
are kind of in that like really thin breeding season and then the eastern gray tree frogs. So we have a little bit of diversity, uh, some interesting animals. You know, it's not just the bullfrog and the spring peeper stuff that people know very commonly. I was trying to get a couple animals that people up north usually don't see. They don't normally see pickerel frogs or in my area, they had never seen gray tree frogs in a couple of the counties. We were actually the first to document them in a few of the counties that we've been working in. So um, like I'll take, I have a rescued gray tree frog who is in episode four. You guys can actually see the story about him coming out, I believe on Thursday. And anyway, I take him to presentations and I'm asking the kids, I'm asking the adults, have you ever heard this frog before? Cause I play frog calls with some of my presentations and nobody raises their hand. Nobody says, Oh, I've heard that. Or I've seen that frog that you're holding. So they're, you know, they're just, I'm trying to go with more mysterious species. So that way we get people interested in a lot of different varieties of frogs rather than just, like I said, the bullfrog. Yeah. Do you, do you guys get the, the grays chorusing up by you or no? Where I, live exactly no but i have to travel in different locations to go and find them um so they're not in my area and there's a lot of things i'm trying to uncover to figure out why that is but in different parts like they're north of me and they're also south of me which is ironic but uh, i guess to give you an interesting story about this too you'll find this out in episode seven so that eastern gray tree frog that was a part of the presentations and the one who's the main animal who's like featured in frog week this year. So some time has gone by and this is like May. No, this is like June, July, like late June going into July. And there's a, there's a population of gray tree frogs that I hadn't found in the Southern County. And I'd been trying to find them all year. Couldn't find them. Oh, for three. And all of a sudden my frog in captivity starts calling and I'm like, I wonder if there's something to that. So I was playing the call back and stuff. I try to stimulate them that way, but I'm like, I think there might be something to this. So I go down to that County and I'm searching and sure enough, they're out. And not only were they out, but my tree frog helped me to find the population where they're breeding and where they're actually the most abundant. And this was a population in a County that had never been documented until 2021. So, I mean, this was a, pretty interesting breakthrough that he helped me to find this and it gets even crazier because a couple of days later he starts calling again and it's later at night usually they're not not like that nocturnal they're more crepuscular so they come out like late evening you know early morning and they're calling the most well i go down there it's late at night and sure enough they're out again so he was two and oh and my pet you know my rescued gray tree frog who didn't even know that that population existed He's not even from there two hours away. He's blowing the cover of these animals and it's cool. Um, you know, cause I go and it's kind of like, a, I don't want to say a hunt in a negative way. Like I'm not hurting the animal, yeah. but I'm yeah. looking for them. And like, that's a big thing that I showcase in the great tree frog episode is I strap a GoPro to my chest and I actually take people with me. You can find how I uncover these animals. Hmm. That's awesome, man. That's so fascinating. Super cool. Now, I was going to ask on the same topic of, of just frog calls and, and identifying and locating, have you and the nonprofit uh, linked up with Frog Watch at all or no? In Pennsylvania, there's a bunch of different surveys that are going on and they're trying to find the distribution of the different amphibians and reptiles in the state. So I do help out with that. And that's where some of these were confirmed as like the first ever documentation. So I think that 
they must work with Frogwatch to some capacity or Frogwatch can import their data. So it's, it's more of a citizen science collaborative effort. Um, one of the things the nonprofit we want to do at some point is we want to actually try to build our own map and we want to be able to document our target species and give yearly reports about where these animals are and how they're doing. Of course, we want to mask the identity of like the exact location because you got poachers and stuff. But, um, you know, that's a big goal that we want to accomplish in the near future. How much has iNaturalist helped in, in all of that? So uh, this is kind of funny, but when I was getting into the detective work and searching for these animals, I used what the state was actually funding. There's a thing called the Pennsylvania Amphibian and Reptile Survey. And I was looking at the distribution in real time through that. Um, all of the information from iNaturalist gets funneled into this. So regardless on what's on iNaturalist, it'll show up on the Amphibian and Reptile Survey that's going on in the state until 2027. So I'm just looking at that and I'm trying to see where can I contribute to fill in the gaps? What can I look for? There's animals that people might not think are interesting or important, but you know, to me, I have that, uh, that fascination with some of these animals and, you know, I wanted to be the first to find them. And, you know, like you're talking about owning corn snakes. I mean, imagine if you're the first person where you live to find a population of corn snakes, how crazy that is because you keep them and you care about them. And now, you know, you're out there helping conserve them. So like that takes it to a whole nother level. Yeah. Oh yeah. Our, uh, our good friend, Scott down in Australia yeah. wanted to know if you ever use iShine for locating. That's a great question. Let me give a shout out to the people in Australia because I love Australian frogs too. If I wasn't doing Northeast, I'd probably want to do that. Um, tell Scott that I have some green and golden bell frogs that I'm working with in, in my uh, Australian tank and would love to see him go over and check out some of those videos. Let me know what I'm doing right. Let me know what I'm doing wrong. Uh, would love to link up with that guy. But yes, um, iShine won't work for tree frogs usually because they're so small. Just to see their eye shine, you have to be like looking for a needle in a haystack. But for pickerel frogs, yes, exactly. You have to for pond frogs. But even for American toads and sort of even wood frogs, I don't technically need to. But um, that's an option. I mean, I have a very powerful spotlight. I have a red lens cap for and I can see the eye shine perfectly with that. I also use... Um, audio calls and all kinds of things at my disposal. I also try to check water temperature, I'm doing a lot of crazy stuff out there, but getting some interesting data. Yeah. I mean, hey, there's, there's no such thing as, as bad data. So at least when you're collecting it, I'll say that. Yeah. yeah. And if, if you have questions about Australian frogs, Scott and his wife, Ty are definitely the, the ones to ask. They literally wrote the book on it. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. No, I, I'm glad you shared that with me. Yeah, I think they're fascinating, too. I mean, they're not in Frog Week this year, but it'd be pretty sweet. I'm hoping that that's in the cards for next year to have some discussion about some exotic frogs. Now that this is a collaborative project, we can kind of open it up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the bell frog and the white's tree frog are two of my favorites out there in Australia. So yeah, shout out to that. I mean, that's a pretty awesome tank. I got a 125 gallon for those guys and uh, native plants from Josh's frogs, Australian plants, a couple are, I guess, even invasive out there. But anyway, I could talk about this like all night about <laughs> the Australian frogs too. So I don't want to do that. But, uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's a lot of fun out there. Um, 
and it's not even necessarily for me herping because I'm taking field notes and I'm trying to do some of this stuff for school and, you know, also for the nonprofit. And the thing is, I think that this is the most important thing I could uh, offer here to anybody that keeps these animals is like, if you're asking me a question about them and their husbandry and their diet and their lighting and all these other things, you know, I've been out there for over five years now and I've been seeing a lot of different populations of American toads and other native species. Imagine what that has done for the animals that I keep in captivity and why they've had such a good uh, life or why they're doing so well, aside from the vet and aside from the stuff that I just genuinely would be doing because I want to be responsible. But, you know, just having that knowledge of, of where they live and trying to recreate that in captivity, you know, it's even more fulfilling. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And uh, in case people are curious, shout out to Nature for You in Australia, uh, Australian Geographic Frogs of Australia. So there you go. Boom. Oh, uh, I follow the um, Australia Museum on Instagram. So I checked that out. I know they got Frog ID Week. So I'll be curious to see what he thinks. Um, you know, what's really interesting is a lot of these citizen science programs, a lot of these databases are now starting to publish results in a lot of the scientific journals. So I think that the scientific journals have opened up and been more, uh, I guess, interested in this kind of conservation because this is actually helping them to know where these animals are if they want to go and do different types of research on. So, you know, it's a different kind of science, but I think that it's also very necessary. And I think it's a, a growing field, if if that makes sense. I think more people, yeah. more groups are going to be doing that as as we talk about this in the near future awesome and uh scott's actually in the group chat right now he said there's actually a second edition out now so keep your eyes peeled kids hop online <laughs> i'll have to check that out yeah well he had asked to uh you know what's the the biggest sort of threat to to some of these species uh he asked about the pickerel frogs and the breeding window is it reduced due to habitat or distribution limitations uh is an ecological adaptation that's a great question sorry i don't know if that was my did you guys hear that i don't know if that was my toad or no. what okay <laughs> she jumped in the water and it just like something made a noise anyway so um that's a really good question so pickerel frogs seem to come out and breed in the 40s and the 50s and they don't start the year breeding like the wood frogs do I think that it, it can get too cold for them. So there's kind of a sweet spot, at least in Pennsylvania. When you get more south, I think that they just are more abundant and they're more common. Uh, there's a fun fact that the pickerel frog was used as fishing bait. I don't know how many people knew this. And it was so persecuted that the United States actually had to get in and stop it being used as bait because it was wow. declining. Oh, I did not know that. They're That's actually, crazy. yeah, they're one of the few frogs in I don't know about all of the Southeast, but at least in Pennsylvania, they're the only species that has a toxin that um, it can actually burn your hands or it can numb your body. Like Brave Wilderness really? showed when oh. he licked them that he was going numb, like your face will go numb and it depends how far you take it. I mean, you'd have to be yeah. really crazy to want to like start swallowing it or licking them and, you know, doing stupid stuff. But um, I mean, he kind of proved that to be true with the numbing, but um, the first time I ever handled a pickerel frog a couple years ago, believe it or not, my hands did actually start to burn. Uh, but after I think I'd handled them enough, my hands stopped burning so I can pick them up now. But he's asking about 
the distribution of them. It's very, very uh, challenging for me to answer that because I'm still learning about the distribution for these animals. They're really fascinating because they seem to be a mountainous species, but they're not tolerant to pollution. Um, and where I'm at, there's a lot of acid mine drainage, so it kind of limits them as to where they're going to be at. But they're probably another species. If I had the room, I probably would own them or consider keeping them because they're just fascinating in their own right. They don't even use their tongues to catch prey. They have to grab it. They literally, it's like all, all in on the poker chips. They have to grab the prey and scoop it in their mouth. And they're just really interesting. Um, high grass hunters, they usually are away from the water, but they're, you know, they are a true pond frog. So a lot of interesting facts about them. Um, their eggs can be golden, which is really fascinating too. Wow. Um, I'm trying to find where they're breeding and see if I can help them to uh, maybe expand their distribution. I've been creating artificial pools all around my area and it's worked for the wood frogs. We're going to try to target the gray tree frogs next, but I'd love to get into trying to help these pickerel frogs. Not that I think they're declining by any stretch. I think they're just so mysterious. You know, you could be up 2000 feet plus and you see a pickerel frog on a mountain and it's like, well, how'd you get here? And yeah, yeah. they could be, you could see it one second and the next second they're gone because they're just so quick. So, uh, um, that's wild. Yeah. Our, uh, our good friend Patrick is in the group chat as well. And he's a little bit older than us. And he says that, uh, in the 1950s, you could buy a box of frogs to use as bait. Uh, he bets those were pickerel, but he was a kid and doesn't really remember. And it's funny you mentioned that because I know that when I first moved to Florida many moons ago, uh, somebody, had, you know, I was getting into fishing and somebody had given me like uh, their old tackle box and there was a, a frog, frog set. Lure. It, yeah, yeah. But it was one of the ones where like you, as you reeled it in, the legs would kick. Right. Mm -hmm. But this was old. This was, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 years old. It was still in the old like uh, uh, clamshell packaging. And wow. it was it was one that was very pickerel looking. It was a, like a southern leopard, and it was a big yep. bullfrog tadpole. And it just I never put two and two together. You know that's wild. Yeah. So I mean, they were really heavily persecuted, and it's crazy that nobody even thinks about it. Nobody even knows about it. But yeah, um, that's why you don't see them as bait. Another thing, kind of sad, a little disappointing, is spotted salamanders were used too, and. Really? I don't know. That's that's kind of rough to think because a spotted yeah. salamander is like so. I don't know. To me, like they're just harm. Like, what are they gonna do? Like, it's you just throw it yeah, in the deep water. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so wow, you gotta you gotta be one one sick bastard to want to put one of those on a hook, man. I yeah. know, right? Jeez, that's just that's disturbing. Right. Yeah, that's a species too. I know they're not a frog, but they've actually made it into Frog Week every year because. You know, they're at the vernal pool and I'm an advocate for the vernal pools. And um, I think they're actually one of my favorite salamanders, if not my favorite. And I just find them a lot um, in different places. And they actually are declining in the southwestern region in Pennsylvania. So the work that I'm trying to do for the frogs hopefully can help the salamanders, too. That's oh, great, man. Scott said there's some really good text and papers on amphibian reintroduction and survey techniques. Feel free to reach out and I will link you up. Oh, for sure. I'd love to. Um, I'll say this, something pretty awesome. About three years ago, I started getting into this, looking at how do I create vernal pools? How do I create artificial pools? Maybe not vernal pools. Maybe that's not the best word because they're not losing water and the tadpoles are going to die by any stretch. I fill them up. But artificial pools. 
And I looked into these different research papers as to like, what's an actual successful vernal pool or artificial pool and what's a failure. And I'd seen some pools that's, that some of the different schools that I'd gone to had created and all they had were green frogs and Eastern newts. And the reason why that's significant is because the green frogs eat the tadpoles as they metamorphosis and they come out of the water and the newts eat the eggs. So if you have those two species, you lose all your diversity. That's all you're going to have. Uh, knowing that and understanding a little bit more about the habitat preferences of the wood frog and the American toad, I've tried to design my vernal pools or my artificial pools in a way that I thought they would come to it. And to give you a perspective of where these pools are, it had been about four or five years since we had seen wood frogs anywhere near the suburban neighborhood that I lived in. Even I live in, um, there's woodlands around us, but the wood frogs just weren't coming around. Um, there was like they paved the roads and knocked down a few trees, but it was just fascinating that years had gone by. We hadn't seen a wood frog. Well, long story short, I take the first pool, put it in the ground and I get like three egg clutches. And I thought, man, that's awesome. You know, like we're, we're starting to make some headway and I've continued to get the egg clutches every year now. And I'm starting to see the wood frogs and you can see in episode one, it kind of ended with a female wood frog who was gravid coming to the vernal pool. And there was a male there and they didn't link up yet in the episode. I don't want to spoil it, but uh, I mean, there are going to be eggs laid <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's just, it's awesome. And now some of the neighbors that I work with to do this conservation are allowing me to put these same pools on their properties. And I'm really curious to see, you know, can I get great tree frogs to come to the same pools after the wood frogs have laid since wood frog tadpoles will be a predator of others. Um, you know, if they're gone after the tadpoles metamorphosis, will the great tree frogs use the pool or will the second round for toads? Uh, or will I have to put in a second vernal pool and try to like play around and move the tadpoles from one out to the other? But I mean, that's different stuff that I'm starting to get into. So that way we can try to help expand and enhance the populations of these, these animals. Are you adding anything to those pools, like leaves or anything to, yeah, like with, with start frog tadpoles, you know, we added uh, like almond leaf and things like that to help raise the tannins and stuff. You know, do you do anything like that with these? Well, I think the most successful things you can add are actually some type of a marginal or a pond plant. So if you're using water lilies or pickerel weed or some type of, I think it's a sedge, but don't quote me on that. Um, anyway, I, I actually have those in the vernal pools and there's always leaves that fall in. So I don't necessarily have to do that where I put my pools, but if you're jump starting it, yeah, I would think maybe a couple leaves from different plants and mostly the pond plant, because that's going to allow the tadpoles to eat. You know, they'll eat the bacteria, they'll eat all the different stuff in there that is living and the plant will encourage all that stuff. But you're also creating an opportunity for insects to reproduce as well. And mosquito larvae and other creatures for carnivorous tadpoles, you know, that's a heaven for them because now we're giving them free food. Um, yeah, that was actually a question I was going to have is down by me. You know, everything that's standing water, that gets dumped daily. I mean, we have it rain every single day, especially in the rainy season. And every single day, if you've got a flower pot that had water, you dump it. Because some of the species by me, a mosquito, they only need 48 hours, 72 hours to, to gestate and hatch. Yeah. So do you have any issues with pools that are not used by amphibians that happen to grow nuisance insects or no? Well, I'll tell you what, one thing that's really interesting is 
of the wood frog eggs and now tadpoles that I have, I don't have any problems. Like I go up there at night to manage it. And I'm also starting to try to get into raising like pollinators, like uh, solitary bees up there. I've actually found that American toads might actually be eating them and wood frogs in their native range. So I, I'm trying to introduce that as a pollinator and a food nice. source for the wild ones. But anyway, um, yeah, I don't actually have problems with mosquitoes in these artificial pools. And that's really fascinating. You'd think, oh, I'd be covered or something, but yeah. they eat them. I mean, wow. there are wood frogs right now, wood frog tadpoles that are well over what they're, what they're supposed to be. Like they should have already became baby frogs and gone, but I guess the quality is so good. I mean, they're getting so fat. They're, uh, some of them are getting their legs and, and leaving, but it's just so funny how the water quality must be decent and there's enough food that they're actually staying and getting like they're maximizing their ability in the water. And I think we're starting to see some of those offspring come back and start reproducing, which is just it's it's awesome. You know, it's really crazy. Yeah. To see that. yeah. Now, you'd mentioned earlier that, say, like Eastern newts were consuming eggs or tadpoles or what have you and other competing species competing competitor excuse me have you thought about elevating the ponds and then having like ramps or stairs or anything like that it's a good question so right now two of the vernal pools are edited or yeah sorry elevated i'm actually going to try to get those in the ground because if you elevate them it discourages american toads and wood frogs from reproducing so actually i'm doing them a disservice by having them above ground um, I need to get those in the ground, but no, I mean, I have never had a newt come to the, to the pools that I've built. I mean, I'm going to have to see what happens when I go out to the tree frog areas and find out, you know, what's going to happen. I'm also going to probably put up some trail cameras cause I use trail cameras to actually catch frogs and toads too. And I want to see, you know, what predators are moving in. Do I got to fence it in? How much, yeah. how much effort do I really got to put into it? And I'm willing to go there. Like I'm willing to do what needs done, but you know, that's just some of the stuff that I'm thinking about um, whenever I'm going to start these projects. And it's crazy, guys. Like I get like 15, 20 different phone calls and messages of people coming out like saying, hey, check out our property. What, you know, maybe you could find something cool. And, you know, we'd love to have a pond or we'd love to have some type of pool. So, I'm, you know, I'm taking those house calls in a way. So, yeah, that's awesome, man. Now, uh, just going back to the to the pools, uh, are you using a like permeable liner or you just dig in a hole so to speak i dig a hole and then if you go to the hardware store and there's little cement bins they're rubber bins mm -hmm. um they're very heavy duty very thick i dig a hole and put those in the ground and it's been about four three or four years now they're not looking like anything is affecting them Okay. So, and I'm in Pennsylvania, you know, and it, it can get yeah. pretty crazy up here, but no, those are, those seem to be the best way to go about it. I think they're about 18 gallons. So not terribly deep, not terribly long, just enough that I thought these animals would use them and they are. So, I mean, yeah, just, just trying to know what your species you're trying to target likes. Yeah. Cause I just think about like some of the tanks I've had over the years for different amphibians and turtles and having something that's not, uh, permeable or or has its own ability to drain regardless or has enough plant life you know you get in excess levels of ammonia you get in excess levels of, of phosphates and, and nitrates and i didn't know if any of that played a factor or if it's just self-regulating because of the plants and the bioactivity that's in there 
Yeah, that's exactly right. It's well, it, and it's a combination of this. It's out in the hot sun and there's full sun that hits it. So it evaporates and I lose a few inches of water. And if I don't uh, drain that whenever it rains, you know, there's too much water. So, I mean, I have to actively keep up with these. So the tadpoles don't fall out in a rainstorm or they don't die because the water actually does dry up. But filling it up with water and then the plants doing their part, that really makes a difference. So I'll give you an example. The third vernal pool or the third artificial pool doesn't have anything like no plants and it doesn't have any leaves or anything. It's had algae blooms and it's actually sadly killed off a few tadpoles because um, you can't you just can't stop the algae from ravaging the whole. Yeah. But yeah, the ones that have plants never had algae problems. Not once. So, wow, that's incredible. That's awesome. <clears throat> so the, uh, with the first episode, you know, you, it was, I believe it, you were mentioning that that was shot back in, I think like February. Yeah. But it was like snowing and you were <laughs> seeing stuff in Amplexus. Like how, how cold is that water? First of all, I mean, when I think of amphibians, especially frogs, I don't, they never stood out to me as something that would be actively out in super cold temperatures like that. And maybe it's because we don't really see that here, but you know, you guys how, both how don't really have wood frogs. Do you, I mean, you do in the mountains in South Carolina, right? Probably upstate. I'm sure we would, but not down here that I'm aware of. Yeah. What, what do you think the coldest temperature is that I've ever seen a frog at? This will be a good game here for you. I'll take a stab at it. Okay. Um, I'm going to say that you've seen it like on the prowl, like hopping around or yeah. just like, um, yeah. I'll go so far as to say at least in the twenties. Oh, that that's a whole different. You reminded me, I heard spring peepers calling in the twenties, but I didn't see really. Them. Yeah. 24 really? degrees on a wow. February night. There were spring peepers calling, but what I was actually going to say, I saw wood frogs. This was frog week 2020. It was like March 2nd. It was 38 degrees Fahrenheit about 8 PM. And it was pretty nuts because it was sleeting and it was cold. And it was like some of the deeper water. Like there were spots in the edges that were frozen when I went to some of the ponds, but I'd seen it road cruising and was just so shocked that I had seen it. But um, over the last few years, it's not uncommon. I mean, the first episode, February 28th, there's an interesting thing that can happen on some of the mountains. We get like a, I don't know if it's a downdraft or what it's actually called, but it was 55 degrees on that mountain, February 28th. And the rest of the area, once you get down even three or four minutes down off of that mountain, it was 38 or 35, like really wow. cold. Huh. So <laughs> yeah, we were very fortunate to be up there that night. And we literally saw the wood frogs starting to come to the vernal or to the large pools up there. And how and cold was it? Well, it was 55 that night, but I mean, yeah. they were starting to get active in the 40s because the season was just so cold for them. I felt bad. Wow. Uh, it really caused a lot. Like, for example, that same population where I saw the first wood frog, they had one night for their breeding season and that was it. It was one wow. and done. 400 mm -hmm. egg clutches or more. And just for our non-American listeners so 40 degrees fahrenheit is approximately four degrees celsius and 24 degrees fahrenheit is negative four celsius yeah, so. yeah. and the frogs were out <laughs> it's wild but there was one part where there i think 
there was tadpoles like swimming under ice. Yep. Really? Yeah. Whereas just again, like to me, that seems like you would not see any of that. Like all of that stuff would be would be frozen solid or dead or buried somewhere, you know, yeah. for, the, for the time being. But those were green frog tadpoles that overwintered in that area, in that water. So uh, surprisingly, the newts are also always in the water. I don't know. I guess they must brumate in the water, too. I never really looked into them that much since, you know, they're a predator of what I like. But yeah, um, yeah, I mean, the newts are always there. They're like first. I mean, they don't really seem to care. I mean, if it if it thaws out for a couple of days, the newts seem to be in the water. But yeah, you wouldn't think that you would see these animals in a frost or in a heavy snowstorm. Like I took people out on we have frog walks in different locations. And it was this this actually is going to be an episode two. OK, it's snowing. And people are like, ah, oh, it's like in the thirties. We're not going to see a frog. Aaron's crazy. And I asked them that I'm like, you guys think we're going to see a frog tonight? Nobody raised their hand. And so we get out there and sure enough, the wood frogs are calling. The spring peepers are going nuts. So there's two years that we've done the very first frog walk of the season. And the first one last year, there was actually, it was like a lightning storm, but a snowstorm too, at the same time. So wow. just imagine that, like you got sleet coming down, it's lightning, and then you're hearing frogs calling. Uh, that was an awesome, crazy. Yeah, it was an awesome experience. And then this year, it was just heavy snow, and it was coming down, and the wood frogs and the spring peepers were going hard. So um, I told them, I said, "All right, guys. So when you Google, do you see frogs in the snow? You guys can all look at Google and say, no, you're a liar.' Like, <laughs> here you go. We got the documentation. They're out here. It's snowing. Yeah, that that's wild, man. I, I remember there was a picture from some, I don't know if it was Reptiles Mag or maybe National Geographic or something, but it was, you know when there's like a thin layer of ice that's basically frost, that like thick frost, and it almost makes like an ice sheet, and it stays in the shade, it stays nice and frozen, but there's like air pockets underneath it, and everything else is melted, but in the shade, there's still like those sheets of ice. There was a famous photo of, of red efts, like just basking on top of that ice sheet in the shade, and it's kind of deceiving because, I mean, it could probably be in the 50s and the ice is still sitting there. But still, like, I always wondered, like, man, like, they come out in that. Like, that's wild. Yeah. And the spotted salamanders, pretty much everybody does, um, at least, like, the early risers. So, yeah, that's an amazing thing. And you're, you're talking about Reptiles Magazine. Shout out to them. I mean, they actually started sharing some stuff on Instagram, too, for Frog Week. I thought that was awesome to see. Um, but, yeah, I've been a fan of them, too. Um but yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. You think about the cold tolerance of these animals, the ones that are in the Northeast. Yeah, um, we don't necessarily have the diversity in the South, but we just have animals that are so resilient. And it, even in that, I mean, they have their own right of being fascinating just with that. You know, why is there just American toads in the majority of Pennsylvania and you have seven down south? You know, I mean, they're very good at what they do and, yeah. you know. I don't know. I just find them fascinating. It's, yeah, because, I mean, down here, I mean, I'm sure, Phil, it's the same for you. I mean, well, maybe not because I get more of a winter than you do. But yeah, like, for sure. here, when it's winter, and, I mean, we have mild winters compared to that, it's it's rare if we get really much further below freezing in, like, the middle of winter. But I'm not hearing anything. I'm not – nothing's calling. Nothing's moving. I'm not seeing anything. Like, it's a complete opposite. Like, there's there's none of that going on. You know, you'd, you'd be – the most you'll see during the winter here is is gators basking mm. if it's warm enough, 
and then the occasional black racer and then maybe some anoles here and there but we don't you know amphibians and stuff you just it doesn't you don't see it like everything just disappears yeah. Yeah. Now, I have a friend who is going to school at Clemson. He's actually in episode one. Um, I think you guys do have your frogs and toads come out around like late January, if I'm not mistaken, in South Carolina. I'm not exactly sure how far south you are, but uh, where he's at, he's he was actually going back in time because the American toads and everything were already done calling by the time he came up in March in Pennsylvania to film them. So wow. it was very different, uh, but I've heard a lot of videos like people have sent in on to the different facebook group chats and they'll say oh our frogs are out and it's like early february late january mm -hmm. and wow. pennsylvania you look outside and you see like you know a couple inches of snow and you're like well at some point right <laughs> yeah. one of these days <laughs> the the only well, time i've ever experienced amphibians by me in any kind of brisk weather because i'm so far south that we really don't get any of that but um i was actually small game hunting uh, with some friends out in like the center of like center of South Florida, like probably two hours from any real city. And it was like 60 something in the evening. And we found one Southern toad on the dirt road. And then that night it dropped and it was like 32 degrees. So say zero Celsius in the early, early morning. But it was just interesting. Like it, the, I don't know whatever happened to that toad, but he was out doing his thing before the drop. So that's wild. You'd be really surprised to know that um, if you're going to get a cold front, sometimes the animals, and actually it's a lot of times, they'll come out and they'll actually do what they need to do before it happens and then they'll leave or they'll hmm. like hunker down. I've actually been out when the, when it starts to change. It's a really weird feeling, especially up here because it, it can go from 50 to 20 or even colder than that. But um, they'll actually be out. It'll be a real productive night. And as the night starts to go longer and longer, you start to hear fewer of them calling. And then when you get late enough, they just all stop calling. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really weird feeling, but it, you know, it's, it's also very productive. So you got to know when to time all of this, you know, like you're talking about snow and uh, you know, changing the, the warm fronts and cold fronts and understanding, well, how does the, the season for these animals, the breeding season change based on the weather? I mean, it's, it's a very, uh, you got to be really good at anticipation for these types of things. Sure. Farmers. All yeah. I mean, how, like <laughs> with, like we were saying before, you know, we started recording and stuff, uh, you know, how important is, is stuff like those serious winners for, for amphibians you know, up there, especially because, you know, down here, well, you know, I was mentioning that with snakes, when I'm cooling them here in the garage in winter, because I don't have a fridge or something that I can set to 50 and leave it be, I'm, I'm completely at the, at the mercy of whatever the season decides to do. Yeah. And, you know, lately the last handful of years, we've had these weird spells where we'll have like a week in like the mid seventies in December, and then it'll yeah. drop down and we'll have like a serious freeze for three days. Uh, and then it'll go back to being in the sixties and then in the seventies again, it'll drop down and like that, there's some species that I'm keeping that that makes spermatogenesis and stuff very tough because they're not getting cold enough consistently to where, yeah. uh, you know, I'm thinking of the, the bimaculata in particular for anybody's curious, yeah. um, like the corn snakes and stuff at this point being native, I feel like they're over time. They've they're it's expected for them. Like they, they're like, okay, it's not, it's going to be winter, but it's not going to be like real winter. Um, yeah. 
but with snow and stuff that that you guys experience up there uh like how important are those are those serious winters for those seasonal reproductions after everything's sort of started to warm up and and things like that i think that they're very important um i think what's a more uh, important thing that we're not really looking at right now is those warm spells and then it drops you know we go back down below zero and sometimes and that's i think more devastating because there are certain species that that could be detrimental to they could just if they wake up and they come out uh like in february we got a crazy before that wood frog was active before i'd actually seen wood frogs coming to the vernal pools early february we were having temperatures for pennsylvania this is unheard of but like 60s and it was like 50s at night and people were going out herping and they were actually finding salamanders and they were finding different frogs that were brumating in ponds and i'm like oh no because like if the toads dig up they're done because i don't mm-hmm. know if you knew this but toads actually cannot freeze they have to dig below the frost line when they brumate so like american toads they got to dig 18 20 feet or more or I'm sorry, inches, not feet, 18, 20 inches. <laughs> That'd be nuts if they're 20 feet started. below, yeah, right? right? Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But uh, 18 to 20 inches or more, you know, below the frost line. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. And if they were to dig up though, you know, there's no way they're getting down that fast yeah. without eating and just the way they would be their state, you know? So that's some of the things I think about, but you look at the wood frogs and the great tree frogs, they literally just hide under a log the whole winter and they don't care. They're wow. just like, all right, let it, let it hit me. <laughs> yeah. I had, that is something I have wondered about just with our native species. When we have those just wacky winters that are ping ponging between spring and actually being winter during winter. Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how confused do they get when like they've been down for a month and then all of a sudden there's a, a week of, of warm weather and they're like, Oh, it's time to come out and do our thing. And then the next following week, it drops back down to being winter again. And they're like, Oh shit. Like, wait a second. Well, I, I have some really interesting information for you for this. After doing this for five years, I've seen droughts and heat waves. And I, this year we had a cold spring. So we've actually seen it colder than it should be. Um, what I've noticed is the ephemeral rain is the most important factor in all of that. Because the ephemeral rain doesn't seem to come if it's too cold, uh, at least for the wood frogs. And even if it rains, okay, it might rain here and there, and it might be a heavy downpour, but it's not raining for days. And what I'm saying, like the ephemeral rain, yeah, like it's raining for like a week or like two weeks. And even like this is actually something that happened during frog week this year. The conditions were right but the wood frogs weren't at the vernal pools for a long time. And I'm like, well, why aren't they here yet? What's going on? It hadn't rained yet, even though it was warm enough, it was in the fifties and the sixties uh, at night, even, and yeah. they hadn't come. So once the rain started to fall, then they started to show up and the same thing happens for the American toads. And then the same thing happens for the other animals later in the season. So you get those like cycles where you're going to get that like couple day long rainstorm. And that's actually what brings them out of brumation. And from my understanding, what takes them back to brumation. So they'll actually use the, the rains that come in in the fall to go back to the, uh, the brumation areas. And uh, that seems to be more influential. And that gets messed up if it's too cold or if it's too hot. You know, it can come very early in the year if it's too warm. And it'll affect the wood frogs because they'll lay their eggs early and then the pools will dry up and they'll die. But if it's too late, then some of the wood frogs, like this happened to me this year, there was a female, I didn't get the chance to show this in frog week, but there was a female who came to the vernal pool that hadn't made it yet. 
and she was sitting there for weeks and waiting for a male wood frog to show up and they'd already shown up. So she was late and she, she actually didn't get to breed last year. It was earlier. It was much earlier in the season. And there was a male wood frog who was calling and calling and calling for like three weeks. He wouldn't leave the pool and he actually got a mate. It's a good story for him, but you know, this year, the female we would have, and I was really disappointed because it's like, shoot, we would have had another egg clutch. All we needed was just another male to show up and yeah, didn't make it. Man. Are you doing anything to manage those clutches when when they happen? Like, are you doing anything to sort of protect them? Yeah, I have a green like fence that's going around where these pools are, so that's sort of the first protection. And like I said, if it's a rainstorm, you wouldn't. A lot of people might not think to do this, but once your pool starts to overflow, the tadpoles have a tendency to want to go with the water, so they actually would get washed out. The first year that happened to some of them. And I became very aware of that. So it's kind of funny because, you know, people around me will look out the window and there I am like with a bucket and a rainstorm running out there to you know, (laughs) drain drain the the pools. So the wood frogs don't, the wood frog tadpoles don't fall out or the toad tadpoles don't fall out of their, their pool. But yeah, I mean that there's that you got to, you know, make sure you're watering. You got to make sure that you're staying on top of things. If stuff dies in the water, like plants, you're kind of, removing too much debris i mean there's there's a little bit more to it but um you know yeah i mean i've had a lot of success i've had a lot of offspring breeding and and reproducing coming back like all that so that's great man you're you're literally managing you're you're managing a micro a microclimate you are no different than if it was herpetoculture in captivity yeah and you know what's it's really cool whenever you start to see the the offspring that you think at least the offspring coming back to then reproduce because it's like, wow, they've made it. Like the cycle has actually yeah. completed. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. Especially something like an amphibian that has like that bona fide cycle. That's, that's awesome. And to see it all come, come back to fruition. You know, you were mentioning about the temperature f- fluctuations and it possibly ruining a breeding cycle or even killing certain species or certain specimens at the time depending on the the temperature waves i remember there was i don't know if it was a paper on the actual brumation of it but there was a there was something i remember about uh northern copperheads where someone had i guess put uh multiple trail cams and time lapse cameras on on a den site and they were noticing that you know one snake would come out and then never come back but the rest of them, they would almost like take a look out and be like, nope, not yet. We don't trust it yet. And then go back. And even though it had been warm for four or five days, they didn't take the risk because yep. they obviously were anthropomorphizing. But it was almost as if they were like, you know what? Let's just see if this drops again before we leave, you know? And I didn't know if you'd notice. It's got to be a barometric pressure. It's got to be. Yeah. I, I didn't so. know if you'd notice anything like that with the toads or what have you. Well, that's a really fascinating thing. I didn't know that about the copperheads, but I mean, I can see that being a real thing. I mean, that could be why American toads survived in the North because, you know, you have to think there's just really crazy winters and springs that happen throughout history. And, you know, if that would have been the case and they all would have come up, you know, prematurely and they all died, then they wouldn't be here. But yeah, there, there might be a part to that. Like he was saying about barometric pressure. I mean, there's a lot of factors that we don't realize go into their decision-making um, when they choose to come up from brumation, when they stay back. 
Um, so, you know, some of the animals like the wood frogs, they kind of have it easier because they can just freeze and they don't care, but everybody else has to deal with what they're given. <laughs> yeah. Overall, what's the, uh, not just in terms of amphibians, but also herps in general up there, but what's the, the biggest threat that you're finding to a lot of these species? Probably the two main ones. The top one is habitat destruction because the gray tree frog literally exists in small pockets. And if you cut down a mile or two miles worth of the trees, you might actually wipe out the entire population in one of the counties that I'm talking about. Like they could be gone from a whole county and that could be a domino effect for other things. But that seems to be a big problem um, because you start losing half. I mean, think of it from the spotted salamander's perspective. So they have site fidelity, which means that they go back to the same vernal pool their whole life. But what happens if they wake up, they go to the vernal pool and now it's a Walmart or yeah. in somebody's backyard. Well, what do they do? Like, I don't know that anybody's documented. What do they do next? Do they go right. to another vernal pool or do they just lay there and like die? Like what happens? I mean, that's a reality that people don't really think about, but, um, Habitat destruction is is a very real and serious threat to amphibians and reptiles. Um, yeah, that's this, our, our our friend Brian in Arizona is going through that right now. Well, over the past say three or four years with Gila monsters, because there's so much expansion in the Phoenix Arizona area mm -hmm. with suburbia coming out from you know Phoenix proper, that these Gila monsters that would hibernate in the foothills. And then in spring, they would walk down the foothills to, dare I say, a grazing area of like lowland desert. Well, they, they go to sleep and then they wake up and now there's a, a, a neighborhood. Yeah. So they're like, where did my where did my my feeding grounds go? Oh, you know, what? I'll just swim in this person's pool or I'll live under this person's trash can. So he's having to deal with that now. It's like, well, where are you going to relocate these things? Right. Because that one lizard has been walking down the mountainside for the past 10 years. Now yep. all of a sudden, you know, there's a, <laughs> a 5,000 square foot house or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real problem. And I'm sorry to hear that because they're actually one of my favorite lizards and hopefully he can work with neighborhoods to do that, you know, to get them to yeah. succeed and maybe plant things that were already there. That's like a big part of what I'm doing. So to give people an example, I know we're kind of far into the episode to talk about this for a second. No, but, go into it, man. Come on. Uh, man, I, I look at this like, uh, why not care about the abundant species? Why not care about some of the common stuff? And sure, not, not that we don't care about the endangered, but if we can also help to prevent, like we were talking about, prevent different them animals. from becoming endangered. Exactly. And so we want to be put in place to be able to help them. And one of the things that I do, and I think we've done fairly well, is we work with the neighbors around some of these places where there's deforestation. Because now if I start breeding or if I start uh, putting the breeding grounds back in different yards next to where that's happening, maybe you can keep some of the population intact. And there's a big thing in the state right now with trying to create wildlife corridors. And mm -hmm. even in my neighborhood, it's kind of funny because the neighbors had a pond and I never had met them or never knew anything about them for years. And this is like seven years. We had an American toad breeding program and now we're on year four of the wood frog breeding program. And I hadn't known what happened between the ponds, but I went up and talked to them and we actually were able to, you know, talk and have a friendly agreement and stuff. And they let me come now on their property and I can film things. But long story short, now we have a wildlife corridor from their pond to my pools, to my mom's pond. And then they'd cross the street and there's a, a native, like a wild pond down the, down the street, like 
couple hundred yards away. So we're starting to create these wildlife corridors to help these animals where they had been declining for so long. And now all of a sudden the habitat's back. So what's going to happen? You know, we've actually seen the toads are, are increasing. The wood frogs are increasing. That's great. I mean, that's something maybe that people listening to this, if you're into that type of um, conservation, try working with the neighbors because People always approached me like, oh, why aren't you working with the state parks? Why aren't you working with the state? Well, for one, the state is not going to protect abundant species. That's not where their funding is. That's not what their interest right, is. Right. So what we're doing is kind of uh, unorthodox. It's kind of like taboo right now in, in terms of conservation because nobody's looking at the, con- the conservation of like abundant species. But, you know, if you work with neighbors, if you work with private property landowners, they have most say of what happens especially if it's not like an endangered species if we're building an artificial pool and we're monitoring that habitat you know they don't necessarily care as much but you know that could be something maybe somebody out there wants to go and start their own nonprofit, and like you said for helping those lizards in arizona or if you're yeah. watching this from wherever mm-hmm. and trying to conserve an animal i mean it's very important you know don't think that one person well, I guess you'd need three to start a nonprofit, but you know, one group of people isn't important. I mean, that's not true. A lot of these agencies and organizations and state agencies and everything, like they rely on a lot of nonprofits to be their hands in the sure. conservation game. So yeah, like our, our friend Peggy Dipmar in the Black Hills, you know, she's doing uh native South Dakota wood or not wood turtles, excuse me, uh, pond turtles, and she's actively working with state biologists and state officials to captive breed specimens that were dare i say a nuisance or or interacting with with humans she takes them raises them breeds them gets all the vet stuff checked out and then they do a re-release so and she's just her and her husband just you know one two people you know Mm -hmm. um i think it's fantastic not to hijack conversation real quick but so you're doing these animal corridors and you're 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 essentially making an easement for these animals to to travel and uh, i know a few years back, there was a study in Alabama and Mississippi about all these amphibians, mostly frog species that were going to full metamorphosis, but with, uh, de- I don't want to say defects, but extreme ab- aberrant or extreme ab- abnormal, like four legs and like 20 toes. And it's all because of toxins Chernobyl. in the water. Yeah. Toxins in the water and agricultural runoff and pesticides. But the, 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 retaining ponds and the wetlands that had an easement to diversify gene pool it it almost fixed it to a certain degree obviously it's not going to fix it because we're polluting the ecosystem but you see where i'm going with this so yeah now you've made these easements you've made these corridors and it's just gonna hopefully even diversify genetics and weed out any kind of bad crap that's in there i think that's awesome yeah. And what I've really found interesting is that American toads more so than anybody else right now that I've been working with will actually use ponds that have fish in them, like not game fish, but like, you know, koi fish and comets like goldfish and stuff. Really? They're actually, yeah. I mean, our breeding program has taken place. They more so like the pond. I don't know why that is, but uh, the toads always will breed where the fish are. And I mean, they're their tadpoles will metamorphosis and we'll see baby toads. I've seen a handful of baby toads already this year. So they have a high success rate. Um, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I never thought they'd do that, but I think they'd rather take their chances with my mom's pond fish than they would with the wood frog tadpoles because wood frog tadpoles will eat all of them. 
I, I think that's super interesting. And I, I wonder if it's regional because down by me, you know, I used to work in, in big box pet shops when I was younger and high school and college and stuff. And one of the things that people would always say is that they, you know, they have koi ponds or they have, you know, a, a, a basin full of comets in their backyard with some water lilies because they don't want to go full koi, you know, or they get some of those big eyed goldfish and the cold water species of fish would produce in excess levels of ammonia and they wouldn't have any amphibians and everyone's like worried about oh well the fish are going to eat tadpoles well, no there's no tadpoles there's no eggs there's no nothing because the frogs aren't going there because the cold yeah. water species are messing the water up meanwhile you're up north where it is cold water species and they're loving it i think that's awesome yeah seven years that they've reproduced in the pond i mean last year we had 16 pairs of toads this year we had um i think we had four or five egg clutches but or i'm sorry spirals but the reason why it, i mean it's a little unexplained but I think it's fascinating. We also had the second round. So I don't know if, if you guys knew this, but some species will actually breed twice in a year. And nice. American toads, I've only seen it twice so far in the five years I've been doing this, but um, it's not very common that they reproduce twice or even three times mm -hmm. in a year. But yeah, they, they came just as strong as they did the very beginning of their breeding season. They came back and that's really cool to see. But yeah, I mean, um, it's it's really like, so the second round, this one female American toad was scouting out the pond after she had her mate and she actually laid her eggs directly in the center of the pond, like going up a, a lily pad. And it was really interesting that she chose to go deep and, you know, lay them and come up because there's fish all around. But I guess because my mom will keep the fish so well fed <laughs> and there's other stuff in there for them to eat, they don't mess with the tadpoles. But yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to see. I mean, these toads are swimming in like a foot and a half to two feet of water and they're graceful swimmers. It's just so funny to watch because you know, everybody says, oh, they're not good swimmers and stuff. But there they are every year, two feet of water, you know, yeah. swimming, going in the waterfalls and hanging out and calling and wrestling. That's awesome. So it's it's really fun. It's fun That's to see. so cool, man. So cool. In the episode you dropped today, you also mentioned obscuring the locations of, of where you're doing some of this stuff from... Uh, you know, poaching is, is collection a big, like what species are, are people collecting to flip or like, what are people going after if they're, if they're out there collecting? Well, see, this, this is an interesting topic for this podcast. So I don't want people to hate me for this, but um, in my location, there seems to be a couple people that are snake breeders that will go out and they'll actually field collect and it's not legal to do it, but they'll put a bunch of these animals in a bucket, take them back to their house, feed them to these exotic snakes. And then, you know, they'll go on and sell the snakes. So it's not even necessarily, they're trying to make a buck off of the frog. They're trying to get a cheap oh, okay. meal for their snakes. And if you take like, you know, a couple of five gallon buckets a night and you're going field collecting, you can really d just That's wipe out an entire population yeah. So knowing that that is happening and, you know, and people are looking for that, looking to take advantage of that. That's why I have to be very careful about like not giving away the exact location because they'll be gone. I'll go back next year and I won't see anything. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's a shame. It's a shame. Yeah. Well, you know, on a lighter note, are you eventually going to plan on getting Ace a boyfriend? Oh, man. <laughs> yes so the 240 gallon is my take on 
the years of seeing the field stuff and, and the habitats and where these animals are hanging out. But this is going to be a two biome enclosure in one. I want to see what their preferences are. Ace loves the water. For American toads, you think, oh, they're away from the water. They don't want nothing to do with it. But she's always like, I know that for a fact that she's always in it every night. As soon as you change it, she'll go in it. If it's dirty, she sits there and looks at you and looks at it. She won't actually go in it. Really interesting that she won't too, because a lot of people kind of deem them as mindless. But no, she knows when the water is dirty. She's like, I'm not going in that. Yeah. yeah but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so I have to be very careful um, because it's it's not legal to breed native species in Pennsylvania. Um, so if I wanted to breed her, I would have to work with the state and do um, like model uh, reproduction programs, which I'm, I am open to trying to do. I do brewmate my animals. So if they were hypothetically to reproduce in captivity, um, that's something I would contact the state and explain what happened. So, I mean, I'm not going to shy away from that, but I mean, I would love to, at the end of the day, I mean, this is, it's not wishful thinking because it could become a reality, but I would love to, at the end of the day, give back to where these toads, because they're from around here, I'd love to allow them to reproduce and add them into the already um, reoccurring population of the toads that are out there because that's where they're from. You know, they're all kind of local. So that's kind of an idea, but yeah, I, I, if I were to do it, I would definitely get her one or two males. So that way they kind of compete. And she has her selection like they would in the wild too. That's great. That's great. What parasites were you dealing with when you had to get her treated or when you treat regularly? Do you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you treat an amphibian? <clears throat> that's, that's actually something I was going to ask earlier and I, I slipped my mind. So Rabdius, the parasitic nematodes are the main one. I think that they are a lungworm. And then there's also one that lives in the, in, or maybe they're intestinal. There's a lung one and there's an intestinal one and they will attack them. The, the, the nematodes, the parasitic nematodes are the main threat because they're all they seem to always be there they seem to Mm -hmm. always be um in some type of abundance whether they're not attacking the animal currently or they're like you know high load of of their parasites but you have to use i mean the way i want to do it and the way that we've done it for the most part has been ivermectin topically it seems to work and i have to do twice uh but i found it's very easy mostly for the gray tree frogs and the smaller animals. If you put them on that dewormer, ivermectin is a really tough thing for them to. to ivermectin is a hardcore drug, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it works great. Wild. Good Lord. And yeah. I can't imagine. Like, I'll be honest. I, I'm, it would, it would, it would scare me to dose that. It would. Yeah. Why? Well, I, I work with an accredited vet. Like the lady uh, came from like the Knoxville zoo and she has an education out in Ohio state. So, I mean, she knows what she's doing and she did save Ace's life. So, I mean, if she saved her, I'm, I trust her enough to let her dose the, the stuff for the animals. Oh no. I, I'm just saying I wouldn't, I could never, <laughs> even if I knew what I was doing, I still would be afraid to, you know, just yeah. cause that shit is so potent. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of a risk to do that, but, um, here we are. So now you mentioned topically. So are you like, is it, I mean, obviously we're using layman here, but are you like putting a drop of it on the site of the nematode or is this, how are you administering? So for example, I think the best one would be ACE. So she's a big, robust female American toad. 
and they take a lot of stuff in through their skin. So if you put it on their back topically, you, you know, you just, it'll run down and it'll at some point run into the skin, run in and, and they'll soak it in. Well, that seems to be one of the best ways for ivermectin. It seems to get into them. It's almost like giving them an IV from what I was explained. So that's the way that I go about it. Um, like I said, I know it's a risk and there was one or two times that we did lose a frog because of possibly, um, they had gotten it and it affected them. So, um, also seeing how they're behaving because then they'll stop eating for a little bit or they'll they'll look sickly depending on where their immune system is at the time, how high the parasite load is. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, I, and I don't, I don't want to discredit or disrespect zoos, but I really would like to think that right now I'm getting to a point now where I'm at least doing things like they would start to be doing. This would be like more of an amateur level or semi-pro type of a zoo sure. type. Sure. situation with this yeah absolutely that's awesome it's fascinating you want to hear something that might blow your mind and your listeners mind absolutely this is crazy i i just i just started this and this is such a crazy idea that my vet actually might want to partner with me and we might actually produce a research paper about this depending on how it goes all right so are you guys familiar with the oyster mushroom no Sounds it sounds familiar, but so you put it on pizza, you can eat it in soup. It's a mushroom that you get whenever you're eating steak and stuff. Like, okay, okay. I mean, there's morel mushrooms that you get usually at restaurants and stuff, but there's also oyster mushrooms. Okay, so what I found doing a lot of digging and just I don't know, I'm on some weird stuff looking at how can I add things to my tank that are native and stuff, but anyway, so oyster mushrooms are native to Pennsylvania and. I don't know if you knew this, but oyster mushrooms, whenever they spread their, uh, what's it called? Spores. The spores. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So the spores will get into the soil and they'll get into like the bark and stuff and they parasitize and eat nematodes. Like they'll, the, the mushroom kills nematodes. And I'm like, well, this is interesting because my animals get attacked by parasitic nematodes. Mm -hmm. So hypothetically speaking, what if we would introduce a native mushroom to this large enclosure and see what happens like this would have to be wow. you know a large in-depth process and i don't know yet all of the the variables and all the things we're going to actually test for but isn't that crazy that a mushroom could actually kill a parasite of a frog and potentially be a natural remedy and maybe we don't need ivermectin if you know, this is wishful thinking. Oh, so, but... so you're you're not just using it as a preventative measure of the toad contracting the nematodes. You're talking about a toad living with the mushroom and yeah. curing it via yeah. spore transmission. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. It's it's really crazy. Like to me, that blew my mind that a mushroom could possibly offer that to a frog. That's wild, man. You know, it's even crazier, too, is because they always show pictures of, like, frogs with mushrooms or toads with mushrooms. Yeah, toadstool, mm -hmm. man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's just interesting if you think about, well, maybe there's more to it than, you know, just the little Halloween decorations or the garden decorations. Maybe there's yeah. a reason why they're by the mushrooms. Because <laughs> yeah. maybe that's actually killing their parasites, maybe out in the woods. But yeah. um Here's something even crazier. I didn't plan this, but this 240 gallon that I'm building, this is a woods and forest media thing. That's not like the nonprofits. It's actually mine. But anyway, the habitat that I'm trying to create is literally the exact habitat that a oyster mushroom colony would need to get started because they need something to spread their spores while I'm going to have fans pushing and pulling air. 
they need a certain climate, you know, the temperate species climate. Well, guess what? I have an air conditioner. It's climate controlled in here. It's cooler, but not too cold and not, it doesn't get hot. So, I mean, this is literally like the perfect situation for these mushrooms to possibly grow. And if I can, you know, and I can grow them and they start to establish in the tank, think of it like this too. So I'm a, I'm really into like some isopod species and I keep canyon isopods if those canyon isopods and crickets and different things in there, like earthworms, if they start eating those mushrooms, the fruit that's actually in the tank, what's going to happen? And though I don't know that anybody has an answer for this right now, but what would happen if like the frog or toad then turns around and eats that isopod that already ate the mushroom, right? Could that get into the system of the toad and, you know, kill the uh, cleanse, cleanse. Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, you're, you're talking Egyptals, like that's fantastic. Now, what about this? So I'm in South Florida, and we we stay away from fungi. Like it is the devil down here because everything is hot and humid. Black mold is everywhere. You blink, and you're breathing in the wrong spores. Have you looked into any kind of I don't want to say dangers of propagating f- this fungus? in your in your home you know start growing it on the walls <laughs> oh that'd be really bad but um no i i have i mean i've sort of looked into it and it doesn't seem to be a problem because people will have the grow kit and it'll just sit in their kitchen and you know people will okay. literally just hang out and and check on it and there's no like keeping it contained in like a you know airtight type of yeah, thing it's not gonna work and i mean we eat them i get that but like there's a big difference between eating the actual mushroom itself and breathing in spores oh i get that yeah (laughs) yeah i have to see how that's going to work out too um because you don't want that to be an irritant to the frogs and toads but uh, i mean you'd probably assume too in the wild that they're getting those spores on them too maybe not to the same degree so i'd have to plan that out a little bit more if that were to happen, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure if you woke up one morning and the entire enclosure was covered in little mushrooms, you would you, you'd have no problem yoinking some out and, and managing that. Oh yeah, I mean you could you could eat them, you could sell them to other people. I mean it's kind of a lucrative business there. You're growing mushrooms in a toad tank, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, yeah. It just goes to show you the the group chat. Everyone's like, oh, people grow them. Like Patrick says, oh, the people grow them in their in their kitchen and like. I'm not a mushroom guy, so I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I have a I have a hard time eating stuff that grows on dead stuff. Well, think about it like this for this tank. Um, I've asked a lot of my friends this question, even my girlfriend. But so if I and this is real, like I'm going to try to grow a native blueberry bush. I'm going to try to grow native cranberries. And also there's a it's a swamp blackberry. It grows. It's like a small vining plant that grows in um, sphagnum bogs. Anyway. It's an edible blackberry that you can eat. So all of that is going to be growing in the tank along with these mushrooms. Imagine if I can start to get these plants to actually fruit and, you know, I could get a lot of it. Um, would you actually, hypothetically speaking, would you, if you were if you were here, let's just say hypothetically, and I reach in and I, you know, go to the sink, wash it off and stuff, and I hand you something, are you going to actually take it and eat it? Or would you be kind of weirded out that it was hanging out with my frogs and toads for a while mushrooms yes anything else no yeah if you literally like blackberries are my favorite fruit hands down 
if I came over your house and you were like, dude, this is Ace's tank. Look at this. This is look, it's got, She's a, got a whole garden. And and you were <laughs> like, hey, you I remember on the podcast, you said you like blackberries and you reached in and plucked some and washed them off and handed them to me. You don't even have to wash them off. I know that enclosures legitimately safe from all forms of nematoda. Um, I would have no problem with it. That's that's awesome, man. It's you organic probably, as hell. You could package those and sell them at Whole Foods for twenty dollars for a box <laughs> yeah, of ten. Ex- exactly, exactly. I mean, but it's Ace the, on the package, you know? Yeah, exactly. No, for <laughs> real. But I mean, that's something that we could possibly do. Some of these plants are um, self. What is it? Is it like self fertile or are they self pollinate? Like yeah. they they don't need to be pollinated by bees to actually produce their fruit. And I'm trying to figure out how to get them to start producing that fruit. Like the blueberry bush I got actually has ripe blueberries right now. It's actually mm-hmm. in with Ace, but um, yeah, I think that'd be kind of cool. Not necessarily that I'm trying to use that as the diet for the creatures that live in the tank, but it's an added benefit because you think about blueberries and cranberries about how beneficial they are for us. Imagine if, you know, there's a cricket in there or there's an earthworm or an isopod and it's eating yeah. all of that. I mean, I know that's not like a full part of their diet. And that's why I have to use the gut load, but that's got to be adding something into the, to the diet for the toads. It's at least got to be adding into their uh, immune I, system. Dart frogs, I think are a great example of that. You know, there's a bunch of supplements and stuff we give dart frogs in captivity, but in the wild, they're completely healthy and they don't get any of that. They manage to somehow pick it up from, you know, whatever they're eating or the soils or, so that's that's something that I always thought was really interesting. It's like Mother Nature doesn't give them vitamin A in a powder form, you know, yeah. they're getting that some way or another. And it's like vitamin A is really important for darts and frogs in general, I'm sure. But uh, you know, there's it's like what are we missing? Like it must be something fairly simple because if they're just living and they're completely healthy and and there's no issues, like naturally they're getting all the things they need. Right. But you know, we got to give them artificial alternatives. Yeah. It's just wild. I, I don't know. Well, I think, it, oh, go ahead. You, I'm sorry. No, no, I was just going to say real quick that you could probably get away with, I mean, anybody who's taken a, a middle school science class, you know, knows that you could probably, if you had the right flowering plant or the right fruiting plant, you could probably have plants that don't self-fertilize in the enclosure and then have a separate one say in your kitchen or in your in your backyard or whatever and just get some sterile q-tips and just twice a year just dust each flowers just swap flower dust and boom there you go i'm not sure it's, it's it's probably not that simple but like i've seen that before where you know people you know have two they have two different they have the same species of orchid in their house or in their living room or greenhouse or whatever and there's no bees to or, or moths or anything to change it you so have to be the bee you have to be the bee so they <laughs> literally they take medical q-tips and they'll roll it on four or five different you know pollen open flowers and just swap pollen and it works like a son of a gun yeah so that's a cool idea too i yeah. want to say this too i want to make this a plug so This project that I'm talking about with this big tank and ACE and the mushrooms and everything else, um, to get people excited, this is actually going to be a cinematic project. It'll have its own um, series coming out. This is probably going to be a thing for next year, but it'll 
likely be the first time ever that a, like for my brand, Woods and Forest Media, we're actually going to contribute to Frog Week next year. And we're going to add this as one of the episodes. So you're going to get a chance to see this documentary. And the whole goal of the documentary is to show people we're going to follow the American toads and wood frogs for a year. We're going to follow them wow. from the start of the breeding season to the end. But here's the catch. So as things are happening in the wild, we're going to be able to show you what's happening in the tank. And I've been trying to get all this data about how can I replicate like the climate, the temperature, mm -hmm. the rainfall, all this stuff. And like even the feeders, like I'm trying to even find the right feeders for the time of the year. And so this is going to be a major ordeal. I mean, I've gone all in on this with uh, spending the, the money I did on the tank and the stand in the background and, you know, doing the research. Like I have a good team of herpetologists and professors. So, I mean, I spent five years like developing this project. I bought a pocket 6k cinema camera for this like i've bought a lot of stuff and nice um like i was sharing with you guys i mean it's a two biome type of enclosure so we're going to have a sphagnum bog with a pitcher plant i'm going to be nice. hopefully one of the first people to to showcase like a a native ecosystem with literally like native plants from pennsylvania mm -hmm. but um, we're going to see what's the preference of these animals. Do they like to hang out in the woodland aspect of the tank or do they kind of like the middle area where it's like the marginal of the bog meets the woods? Like what, right. what do they actually like? And um, this could be a good teaching point for people about invasive species, about like competition of multiple frogs in the same enclosure. We could talk about um, pollution in some cases, like there's a lot of really neat stuff that can happen with this. And so I've been trying to just interest people because this is like, again, this has been years in the making of this project. And I, I really believe that I have like the, probably the perfect main character for the first year of this project in ACE. But, um, yeah, I, I hope that it'll interest people. Like I said, a carnivorous plant, mushrooms, blueberries, you know, I'm going to try to replicate a thunderstorm in this tank. Like this is crazy stuff and spent a lot of time trying to develop it. Yeah. That's it would also be interesting too. If you took like a, like a toadlet and you know, do the same thing, but see if there's an ontogenetic shift in terms of preference between the more aquatic, like boggy side of things. And then the, maybe the drier yeah. Yeah, woodland type deal. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That's awesome. I'm 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 I love shit excited. Like yeah, yeah, this is awesome. so great. So great. Actually, uh, you know what you could do too is I don't know if you have um whether it be for for the media or for the 501c3 if you have some kind of Patreon or something to that extent. I know a lot of zoos now are doing like the zoo membership, right? You become a member of the zoo, you know, they put your give you a member card and a lot of it's for kids, you know, to get them involved and help support, you know, conservation and the, and the zoo stuff, but they do a live cam, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say they get a baby hippo or they get a, they get a baby giraffe, right? And it's like, Oh, here's Jeffrey giraffe, you know, and he just got born. Look at him wobble. And you can sign on any time of day, 365 anywhere in the world. And you can log in with your member ID that you're paying, you know, five bucks a month for or whatever. And you can watch the baby giraffe on the live cam. You could do that with Ace. Yeah. You, know? you want to know something really crazy? So there's a guy who I work with in one of the jobs I have, and he pitched that idea about live streams. So right now I would love to build the audience first. And then I would like right. to see if we could actually get some people that are like super fans that really want to pay for that kind of material. But 
Um, I think first how I'd like to start it out is going live on YouTube and allowing people to see different aspects of this tank. So yeah. maybe, you know, you'd join me and you'd see a feeding video or you would just see, I think people with how big this tank is would just want to watch it and see how like Ace and these other animals are in there and just kind of live in a daily life because it's so big that like they literally can travel to get to different resources. So that might even be interesting. There's, I don't know if I shared this yet, but there's actually going to be two wood frogs in this tank. So how does the interspecies uh, competition yeah. relate? How does this happen? Even with the other toads, um, the original goal is to have just four, like two American toads and two wood frogs. But the way things have shaken out, uh, there was a school that they shut down their herpetology program. I was contacted and I was reluctant to take it at first, but it's another female toad. So I'm hoping she gets along with Ace. So that adds another one in and another toad who is who's actually out in the hallway is going to come in. Um, but anyway, so it kind of takes the number between four and five toads and two wood frogs, which personally, I don't like having that many, but I'm kind of at no choice. Like I kind of have to, uh, but what's that going to be like for, you know, for Ace and the wood frogs? Um, how are they going to coexist? And I think that these are all really interesting and important questions that people will have the chance to see. And even from a live perspective, I'm also looking at the idea of having, having two different webcams so people can see different angles whenever i go live yeah yeah and th that's kind of what i was getting at is if you have a, a 250 gallon tank what, what is it is it six or eight foot long i wanted it to be eight but i couldn't fit it up the steps so we had to make it six foot nine <laughs> inches <laughs> okay all right so so you have a six foot enclosure right yeah they have such tiny little live stream cams now that that you could have one on let's just say you know, for general purposes you could have one on the hot side one on the cool side and then one that's you know looking kind of fish-eyed at both and there are people that you know they can't sleep at two in the morning oh let, yeah. me, let me just see what ace is doing at two in the morning right or or their morning routine they want to have a cup of coffee and just that's... you know sit and watch ace in the morning you know yeah i mean crap pe people watch that's something we would put on videos. at work and just and just periodically yeah. check it while we were yeah exactly you know, <laughs> we do that with snake eggs all the time like i have a a wise camera and when i have stuff hatching you know I, I have the camera on it and i'll check in while i'm at work on my phone and me and my coworker will be like oh did that one come out yet yeah it's like no that one's moving around <laughs> like you know so like that kind of stuff yeah we, it's yeah. even if nothing happens you're still like now i've got security cameras already on the majority of the tanks that i have i only have four tanks at the house here um but I also want to try to get into live streaming a little bit. I don't actually normally do that, um, but I just think that this is the actual project to do it with. So, right, right. Yeah, I would love to invite people to check some of that stuff out. Um, we, yeah, man. We got a pet care show as well. Um, it's more so geared for people that keep some of the native stuff. And of course, I was talking about love for the Australian stuff too. So um, people might be interested in checking that out. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff going on and, and you're looking at it from somebody else's perspective who, you know, I'm in grad school and I'm a field, I don't want to say researcher, but like I'm, a, I'm doing field work and, you know, doing a lot of work on these animals outside. So, I mean, I'm trying to bring that inside and it might interest people. I would have say, I would say with full confidence that you are a field researcher, regardless <laughs> of your employment or your uh, uh, educational status. You're a thousand percent doing field work. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm trying, man, there's so much we could talk about with that because, and maybe I can come back and be a guest for that too. Um, Hell yeah, man. I mean, Absolutely. man, I'm doing a lot with like reverse osmosis systems and rain barrels and looking at trying to 
actually make this tank hybrid energy. I mean, this is some crazy stuff that I'm trying to accomplish with it. Look, not, not to sound preachy, but coming from someone who did not do what you did or what you're going to do, I should say, document everything, man. Just document everything. Because even if no one cares, someone's going to care. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we got you guys that are going to follow it and yeah, interested. Yeah, absolutely. So. A thousand percent. Well, I mean, coming from the dart frog world and knowing how hardcore people are about that kind of information and how like they can make the tanks better and more self-sustaining even if they're already super self-sustaining like that kind of stuff like people want to know and there's plenty of information from that too that people can can take and carry over to other herbs not just amphibians like i know there's plenty of people that are keeping snakes and lizards and stuff that would absolutely take that some of that information that is that is applicable and run with it yeah for sure Sure. Yeah. And I think all of this relates back to like, you know, frogs and toads out in the wild and at home, like being for me, like, you know, they're, I don't know that they feed off of each other because like I'm getting so hyped seeing these guys in the wild and coming home and getting hyped seeing these guys at home. And it just kind of feeds itself and, you know, continues to grow my passion for doing this stuff. It's great, man. It's great. So what's the uh, what's the game plan moving forward within the next you know year five years? That's a great question. That you got targeted? Yeah. So I don't think we talked about this part of it yet, uh, but I actually am also into detective work with trying to document and find species, but like learning. Like I said, I do a lot of work with neighbors, but like meeting people who know someone who knows someone who knows someone. And networking, baby. Networking. Yeah, exactly. Because somebody has something on their property that nobody else knows about. And sure. I'd love to be the first to find that. And we've we've done that. We've actually made some novel discoveries, but it comes with trying to network. Like I think a good example is Jeremy Wade on Animal Planet. You know, he's doing uh, river monsters and stuff. And what does he yeah. do? He goes to the bar, he goes to talk to neighborhoods, like and he's asking the people that live there. And that's sometimes and most times the the real like way that you're going to find if something exists, it's not, you know, necessarily even going to look in where the ge geographical regions are. Um, you go and ask, Hey, have you seen this? And they'll say yes or no. And, and a lot of times you'd be surprised, but they're right. So to answer your question, I'd love to find populations of lizards in certain areas where I'm close to in Pennsylvania, because up here, you say a lizard and people are talking about a salamander. Well, I'd like to kind of change that narrative and say, no, like literally a lizard, like here it is. Yeah. <laughs> gummy lizard, gummy lizards. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, I, I mean, skinks, five line skinks would be probably the main one. And then the Northern leopard frog is still elusive and it's something that I'm still trying to hunt down. It's one of those species. The Fowler's toad is another one, even though they're very common for you guys in the South, yeah. they're, they used to be common in Pennsylvania, but they've been declining and they're only found in certain counties and they used to be more abundant, but I'm trying to look for different populations of different frogs and toads. And uh, to give you guys an example, this year, it was a complete accident, but we found these people where we found the second population of gray tree frogs in the County I'm from. Uh, we also found the very first population of map turtles. So, wow. Oh, cool. That's awesome. So, I mean, it just, and it was a complete like accident and it happened, but um, we're trying to, like I said, make some novel discoveries and try to find different things that exist um, where they maybe shouldn't. But he asked me about a five-year plan. I mean, 
after I graduate this May, I'd like to see where that takes us. Um, I don't know. We'll just have to kind of see. I mean, I'm open for working and doing whatever it, I'd like to do conservation. If I can get the channel big enough or if I can get enough funding from the nonprofit, like, I mean, I would love to make that my, my job long term. Like sure. we're looking at the end of the day, like 10 years from now, because I can do more for the animals I'm trying to conserve with the nonprofit than I would for anything else. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, I, I mean, that is kind of a, an ulterior goal, but I would like to get a career doing something in the biology field and, um, you know, try to, to be there to help some of the animals. Yeah, man. You're a Keystone native. Uh, like PA. Yeah. 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 That's great, man. That just adds yeah. to the story, man. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, really passionate about like even the, even the, like not just the frogs and toads, but like I was talking about the pitcher plant and yeah. all the other creatures too. I yeah. didn't even know you had those up there. I didn't know that they were, they were native. Yeah. We've got a few carnivorous plants, but uh, the purple pitcher plants, the only like actual pitcher plant. So uh, yeah, I just always found it fascinating and I take that out with me actually to go and present to kids and, one cool fact, I don't know how many of your viewers knew this, but they actually have a symbiotic relationship with many frog and toad species. Sure. So they won't eat frogs and toads unless like there's a an accident on the frog's part. But um, like tree frogs, mostly the hylids and even the chorus frogs will sleep in pitcher plants and they'll use them as a, a refuge. They'll actually eat inside of them and the plant gets fertilized by the frog's poop. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah. even though the two species that I'm going to have my pitcher plant in with don't use it it's still somewhat um you know relevant yeah yeah it's relevant yeah. for frogs you, you you may not know that you may see something that no one else has seen <laughs> that's a good You'll point look up and ace will be hanging out in that thing and it'll be yeah drooping over <laughs> <laughs> well, she gets even in there it's a problem yeah. he'll just yeah. be loving it yeah man that's so great that's so awesome yeah, yeah i i was actually going to ask real quick too is you were talking about you know, the grays and finding out populations of gray tree frogs. Like, is there specific type of trees? Like, is it more of a, a deciduous or is it coniferous or um, like, do they only live in oak trees? You see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it seems to be a mixed forest does the most for them in okay. like the north, at least for where I see. It doesn't seem to matter as much about elevation, but I don't know if you knew this either, but Eastern gray tree frogs, the range ends in Virginia. Uh, they've actually started to pop up in North Carolina because they came in on plants, but they're more so a cold tolerant species. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's really interesting. You think that because a lot of people I talk to, they're like, Oh, a tree frog. You think it's exotic. You think it's like a Florida species yeah. or something, but or they think of red eyes. Yeah. But these animals are actually semi freeze tolerant. And not only that, but they seem to, right now be uh, coming out of where there's a lot of deforestation happening, which is why, like we talked about that first and why I said that's a problem because they're coming out of places that are being timber harvested and we're finding them as that's happening. And that's actually part of the story of the great tree frog that I have is he was at one of those populations and I had a choice to make, like, do I want to rescue 14 toads and like four gray tree frogs and take them to a pond that's about a hundred yards away? Or do I just leave them there? Cause it's yeah. the end of the night from my my field work and i made the decision to go and move them and that's kind of the story you'll have to see how his name's esperanza how he ended up with me after that but um 
Yeah, I mean, a mixed forest because there seems to be pines. There's like hemlocks. Hemlocks up here in Pennsylvania are still a thing, and they mixed in with a lot of the deciduous trees appear to be um, where the habitat is is at. Um, I also found out this year that they also will utilize bogs, which I didn't necessarily think, but they'll go to the sphagnum bogs and they'll reproduce as well. So anything that seems to be flat, I mean, they're vernal pool breeders, so it makes kind of sense whenever the water in a bog, you know, is up here and then it kind of drops. So, but yeah. Um, so hopefully that answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking, you know, you, you can, you, you have so many different avenues, whether it be, other species of reptile reptiles like the, the map turtles and then other amphibian keepers and uh, carnivorous plant keepers and tree people and like you you're linking it all together man i love it i appreciate that yeah i'm trying to i really want to build a good network of people that care about these different things another thing that we didn't even talk about this kind of goes for the nonprofit and for what i'm doing is ants so i'm actually looking to breed a colony of ants and uh use them some point whenever the colony gets big enough to drop into the tank and allow the frogs and toads to hunt them because that's a big part of the diet for american toads and wood frogs but you'd be surprised to know like ants are a lot of uh, seed dispersers in the wild and mm -hmm. again they're a big food source for these animals and they also i don't know that they pollinate but i think they contribute in some facet to that sure um so yeah uh we're yeah. actually trying to help ants as well formicaria is a rabbit hole that i've i've been tempted to go down but i'm i'm really scared to because i know it'll just it'll get out of hand <laughs> yeah, that right. whole world man is just so damn cool like there's a couple of accounts on instagram and stuff of people that that do the ant farm thing and dude that's and like those guys it's not so an ant farm it's an ant cool. city mm -hmm. yeah yeah so cool i'm hoping so. to build one of those too <laughs> next to the big tank so that way they can go into each other yeah that's wild man wow yeah yeah, man, there's a lot of cool stuff. Um, like I was talking about the solitary bees. That's another part of it. Uh, we were talking about the pitcher plant. I was involved in bringing them back to another location where they once existed. And they offered me one of the plants that somebody had been growing for like 25, 50 years. I'm like, wow, I'll take it. So the plant's like as old as I am. It's in its 20s. And I'm like, well, here we go. We got the centerpiece for the big tank. Wow. Uh, it's a massive yeah. pitcher wow. plant. But yeah, we're doing we're doing stuff with all kinds of target species for the nonprofit. And um, I think it, it interests a lot of different people because there's so many things. If you like bees, if you like ants, if you like different plants like carnivorous plants, frogs and toads, we got bats on there. So, I mean, we got a lot of different stuff. That's great, man. That's Love so it. great. Well, if people want to get uh, in contact or stay in the loop and, and you know, keep an eye on what's going on where's the best place for people to do that well if you want to learn what we're doing with the field work and you want to follow a lot of the frog week stuff then definitely the website for pa woods and forests that's the nonprofit. so that's let me see i'm toning my head wrong so that's this logo if you if i move you'll see the logo there that's the mm -hmm. nonprofit logo and then if you want to learn about the different shows that I'm doing on YouTube, I, I look at my YouTube channel like it's a streaming platform because I have friends from all over the, the, the country 
that are actually participating in the podcast or the hiking show or even the pet care show. So, I mean, we have a lot of different categories and I, I do look at it like it's a streaming platform, allowing people to have freedom and encouraging people. Maybe you don't like hiking, but you like frog conservation or you like seeing pet care videos or you like podcasts like this. So, I mean, we have a lot of different stuff that we do. Um, you can't really see my logo. Oh, this one. Yeah. So that's the, the woods and forests media logo. Uh, but you'd be able to, go to the YouTube channel and the Instagram and see a lot of the stuff that's happening there. Um, one thing for you guys to note, if you're interested in both, there's a blog on the, the PA woods and forests website, and there's actually a blog featuring the 240 gallon tank. It has its own section. So if you want to check that out, you can oh, kind cool. of follow that and uh, you can see, cause I'm active on there. I, I try to give updates frequently. Um, that's awesome. So yeah, if you guys watch this and you're going to follow that, um, check out the blog for PA Woods and Forests. You'd be able to see pretty much anything that's going on between the two. So I, that's probably what I would recommend is, is checking out the website for PA Woods and Forests and, you know, checking out the channel for Woods and Forests Media. And if there's anyone in that that your neck of the woods that's that wants to get involved or help in some way or another, is there a way they can do that? Just get in contact with you through those or? Yeah, uh, I mean, anybody that's out there, you know, if you want to send us some pictures of frogs and toads and see if we can help identify them, especially if you're in Pennsylvania or if you think you have, you know, a northern leopard frog in your backyard or you think you have a great tree frog or something, you know, take some pictures, take some audio. And uh, on the website, we actually have a, a Gmail and you can you can send it to us through our Gmail and I'll get that notification. Or you can I think um, if you're on the phone app, you can actually send a message directly to the nonprofit and I'll get that as well. So there's a lot of cool ways you can get in contact with us nice. and somebody will reach out and, and try to connect with you. Awesome. awesome. And this is a great episode, man. We really enjoyed yeah. having you on. Yeah. This is, this is just what I needed, man. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, let's, when's the part two? <laughs> we'll make it happen, man. Like it's absolutely, I'm definitely, I'm, I gotta go see what this tank's looking like. I'm super curious. So, yeah there will most definitely be a return so this was episode 172 of snakes and stogies brought to you by blackboxcages.com fullvisapparel.com if you end up getting anything on both at checkout use the discount code thn save yourself some money on a black box cage save yourself 15 percent on fullvisapparel.com just for thn listeners uh, we'll be back Thursday for THP, as far as I know. Um, Daytona's coming up soon, so we're going to do yeah. sort of a pre-Daytona show here soon, within the next two weeks. Can't freaking wait. It's going to be uh, so good. Yeah, so check out all those things, and then Puget Sound Pythons. Give them a follow on Facebook, Instagram. Hunt them down on Morph Market. See what they've got for sale. Give them a follow on there as well, and we appreciate Everybody, thank you. Bye.